This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 189. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lum Ramayasha, and today we have another Simulpub slash serialization roundup for you folks. The first one of 2022, where we are going to go over all the recent new serializations that have sprung up. This includes one-shots like the latest chapter Shigeru Sanji, but also includes some new series from Manga Plus, including Maji Lumiako LTD and Kaiji Chief, and some new titles that were sent to us pre-released courtesy of MangaMo, including Robustness Road to Olympia, Dungeon Battle Royale, Ultra Femme Shihara-kun, and Ghost Story Loop. And on top of all that, the entrance of the preeminent manga podcast, Monus Laning, entering into the manga publishing scene with their own set of comics they're publishing on Substack, starting with Okinawa, a collection of stories from Suzumhiga that they are publishing like weekly on Substack, and it's super cool, and we're going to be talking about that too, and so it's a big, awesome roundup of all the latest and most interesting civilizations that have come out recently, and yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I'm also really excited for this because, uh, you know, usually when we do these sort of simulpub roundup episodes, it's usually like a lot of Shonen Jump stuff. But I think we have like a really good variety of like titles to talk about for this episode. Yeah. So I'm really excited for that. But before we even go on to the rest of the show, uh, I think we should extend a big thank you to everyone who has taken our Manga Maverick survey because uh, that is now closed by the time you're listening to this. And uh, hopefully by the time you're listening to this episode, we'll also have already recorded our survey results podcast that will be up on our Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks for probably just a dollar this time around, just so that way uh, anyone who signs up for our Patreon can listen to it. And yeah, again, thank you guys so much to basically anyone who took the survey. We really appreciate your feedback this time around. And yeah, we just we just can't thank you enough. Yeah, thank you guys again for taking the survey. We always love hearing your guys' feedback, and we look forward to chatting all about it as well. So look forward to our annual survey podcast that we'll be doing. That'll be Patreon exclusive this time, but only for a dollar to make it like a low barrier entry. And, you know, nice thank you to patrons. But also, we will be posting, announcing the results of the survey on the same time that podcast is posted on our Twitter. So yeah, I look forward to hearing the results and especially for your giveaway winners i'm sure you'll have received your emails by now about you winning and picking the book of your choice so i want to thank you guys again for take it and uh, congratulate you guys for uh, winning the survey this time winning the giveaway this time Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I guess with all that, we kind of mentioned earlier, we do have like some small news to talk about. One of those items being another book scan list, uh, the one for uh, January 2022. And uh, we're just going to go over that and talk about that uh, real quick here. And we're going to start right at number one here uh, with a title that I was not expecting to be number one, but also like, I guess maybe I should have expected it, uh, because we have Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba Stories of Water and Flame, which is a, uh, a side story volume featuring uh, Rengoku and Giyu. And yeah, Demon Slayer at number one. Again, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I guess I was only surprised because like I, I don't normally see like a lot of like side story stuff on this list. But I mean, I guess, you know, we also have that in My Hero Academia coming soon. But yeah, p- people really want Demon Slayer, it seems, no matter no matter how much of it is in print right now. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly helps that this being a fresh new volume, there surely was enough copies in print for people to go out and buy. So the demand for Demon Slayer is obviously there, and thankfully this was the freshest new Demon Slayer manga release that people could collect. So nice to see it do very well. It's a good set of stories, both the Tomioka stories and the Rengoku stories. They're pretty interesting look-backs into their past. And the relationships with other Hashira, with Tomioka and Shinobu in particular, and with Rengoku and Kanroji. It's very interesting. Okay, I might have to pick that up sometime. Uh, I guess just to talk about the other Demon Slayer stuff on the list, because uh, we have Volume 1 ranking at number 5, with Volume 2 ranking at number 7, and Volume 3 ranking at number 10, and I believe that's all the Demon Slayer on the list, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, I, I kind of mentioned printings earlier, and we also talked a lot uh, last episode about, you know, how many volumes of other Demon Slayer volumes may actually be in print or not. And I'm I'm assuming more of those got printed, maybe, because like, it, it's been a while since we've seen, like, multiple volumes of Demon Slayer on this list, I think. Yeah, so maybe the series is finally returning to print, at least these early volumes that we're seeing on the list. Mm-hmm. Or maybe uh, maybe comic book shops found a couple extra Demon Slayer box sets. Box sets. Yeah, and they broke them open. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In that case, so there'd be even distribution of all the volumes, so. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, but yeah, Demon Slayer doing very well, uh, like usual. Uh, along with uh, our other big runaway hit, Chainsaw Man. We have Volume 1, ranking at number 2. Volume 2, ranking at number 6. With Volume 4... Ranking at number 9, Volume 3, ranking at number 11, uh, Volume 5, ranking at number 13, with Volume 8, ranking at number 16, and Volume 6, ranking at number 18. And uh, I think Chainsaw Man has the most places on this list. That's that's quite a lot of Chainsaw Man. Yeah, Chainsaw Man takes up a third of the list, <laughs> which is quite impressive. Like, a huge surge in interest in Chainsaw Man right out of the gate in 2022. A good omen for how successful the series is going to continue to be when that anime never really comes out. Oh man, when that anime comes out, well, maybe not the whole list, but it, I, I'm sure like every volume of Chainsaw Man will be on the list at the same time. It could happen. It could happen. I mean, there's certainly enough volumes for it to reasonably be the case that all 11 rank in the top 20. Mm hmm. But yeah, I knew Chainsaw Man was popular, but I honestly, well, I mean, I guess uh, the last book scan list, uh, list we talked about, you know, last episode, I think Chainsaw Man had the most number of volumes on that list, too. Or maybe it was Jujutsu Kaisen, actually. It was one of those two. I already don't remember. Um, but speaking of Jujutsu Kaisen, uh, at number three, we have Jujutsu Kaisen Volume Zero. Again, ranking at number three with Volume One, ranking at number four, and uh, I think, oh, uh, Volume 13, ranking at number 19. I think that's all of them. I usually do these lists ahead of time, get them ready, but uh, yeah, Jujutsu Kaisen, uh, still doing very well. Volume Zero, obviously, with the uh, Jujutsu Kaisen Zero movie you know, out there, at least in Japanese theaters, and with it coming out very soon in North American theaters and Canadian theaters, I should say, a lot of interest for Volume Zero in particular. I am not that surprised that it's that high on the list, quite honestly. Yeah, no, Jujutsu Kaisen continuing to maintain interest, and Volume Zero in particular continuing to attract a lot of interest because of the buzz the movie's getting. And I'll be curious to see how JJK sales will be affected when the movie does come out stateside. And, like, will that drive even more people to the manga? It'll certainly be interesting to see how it continues to grow. 
I have to imagine when the movie comes out over here in March that we'll probably see volume zero just as high, if not maybe even higher, possibly. Yeah, I could see it take number one again, like last month. Next up, we have Dragon Ball Super, Volume 15, ranking at number eight on the list. Dragon Ball Super, d- definitely guaranteed to be on the list whenever a new volume is out. So no no surprise there. People are into Dragon Ball. Who, who'd have thunk it? Uh, and then next up, we have Spy Family, Volume 1, ranking at number 12 on the list. And Spy Family, uh, Spy Family at this point, you know, has an anime coming out. I would not be surprised if like more than one volume of Spy Family ends up on this list uh, by the time the anime comes out, honestly. Yeah, this is what we've been saying ever since Spy Family first came out in print. That, oh man, Spy Family's already doing so well. Like, it's just going to explode once that anime comes out. And now that we're finally approaching the point where that anime is indeed coming out, I am definitely keen to see if our premonitions will be proven accurate. Mm-hmm. I think so anyway. And then at number 14, unlike last month's list that we talked about last time, uh, we have at least one volume of My Hero Academia, not the not the OG series, but My Hero Academia Team Up Missions Volume Two, which is a, a pretty cool like collection of like My Hero Academia side stories featuring like basically a bunch of different characters kind of grouped up together in different missions. I've read at least a little bit of it. I really like what I've read so far. I, I think it's a good like it's a good opportunity to like have other characters that might not have like a ton of screen time in the original series, get a little more screen time in like another side series or whatever. So I'm really liking what I've read of it so far. And I'm, I think this is, we were talking about this off mic. I think this is the first time team up missions in particular has ranked on this list. Cause I don't remember seeing volume one on this list, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't remember, but I'm not surprised again, much like with a demon slayer one shot collection. It's like, yeah, I mean, My Hero Academia is very popular. This is the newest My Hero Academia volume. And as we mentioned on the last show, it's been quite a while since the last volume of MHA actually came out. Yeah. So I'm sure fans are like, oh, this is the newest MHA book. We gotta get grab it. And especially since I, MHA is another one of those years where I think there's a big shortage in a lot of volumes in terms of their findability in stores probably i do think that definitely helps it like stand out among the pack in terms of books like people are clamoring to buy Mm-hmm. Uh, we should also mention though that my hero academia volume one the original series does rank on this list at number 17 so volume one back on the book skin list so it took a little break you know uh we we had to we had to let you know all the other series you know get their spotlight or whatever but uh, little do they know, I'm sure My Hero Academia is just waiting for the day where it, where it takes over the book scan list again. <laughs> Maybe. You never know. Yeah, I mean, it could happen at any point the series could get another research. And it could also, again, be like a printing shortage that is causing like some of the sparsity, relative sparsity of MHAs on the list. So if the series like ever, you know, goes back into print like full swing, I'm sure we could see another surge. I think so, too. Um, Next up, we have Attack on Titan Volume 34, ranking at number 15. Once again, Volume 34 is the last volume of Attack on Titan, so I'm not too surprised that people are still buying it up. Um, Usually would see, like, Volume 1 on this list, and I don't think that's the case this month, which is kind of surprising, but... Hey, you know what? Attack on Titan, as we discussed uh, last episode, is one of the most high-in-demand TV shows in general. So I'm I'm not that surprised that the manga is, itself is also doing well, you know. Um, and then, uh, I guess, last but not least, we have Toilet Bound Hanako-kun, Volume 12, ranking at number 20 on the list. Toilet Bound Hanako-kun, once again, doing very well for Yen Press. And yeah, I think that's 
really about it for the list. I mean, boy, yeah. I mean, if if last list wasn't any indication, I mean, Chainsaw Man and Jujutsu Kaisen are really, really taking it over lately. <laughs> as as always, I'm 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 really interested in seeing like. You know, j- just like with how long My Hero Academia kind of took over the book scan list, now I'm kind of wondering if we're if we're if we're seeing a new era of takeover for this list. I think potentially. I mean, certainly, I think Jujutsu Kaisen is in particular is like becoming the new it series that everyone is like really getting into, at least from what we've been observing from the list. Yeah, and obviously, Demon Slayer has sustained popularity, MJ has sustained popularity. But, you know, like concentrated, like what everyone is like super reading and buying right now tends to come and go in waves. And I think it's Jujutsu Kaisen's time to ride that wave. See, I was gonna say I, I think it's I think it's more so Chainsaw Man's just because I, I think, you know, there are a few more volumes on the list anyway. But, you know, I, I think it's also fair to say that I, I feel like they're both kind of sharing the spotlight. I, I feel like they're they're the ones kind of duking it out while everyone else is just kinda like you said, you know, maintaining at least some semblance of popularity, you know. Um, I think that's about it for the list, unless you have anything else you want to add. No, I think this was another interesting books can list. I mean This is another one of those where, you know, it's nice to see that it's all dominated by manga, but it's another one in which it's mostly Viz Jump titles with, like, the two regular exceptions we've come to expect at this point of Taiden and Hanako-kun. And it's good to see those titles be competitive with the jump hits, but also it's more interesting oftentimes to see, like, non-jump series get, you know, put in the top 20, you know, stuff from other genres besides shonen action. So it's not like the most eclectic list, but it's interesting to see like what are the big it series, you know, starting off the year and how that'll continue into the rest of this year. But moving on from the list into some other serialization news we wanted to touch on before we talked about new serializations, we will update with one that is ending, or has ended, by the time you're listening to this, and that is Mago-chan. Mago-chan is officially ended with its 77th chapter as of February 6th, which has been something that a lot of fans have been speculating and expecting for a couple weeks now, and their fears have come to pass. There will be a additional 41-page one-shot with color pages that will be published in the Spring 22 edition of Jump Giga, and rumors are that it'll be about Ren, which is interesting, but that also makes sense because that would give it enough pages to fill out a final volume. The 8th volume, I believe. So, yeah, it's sad to see Mago-chan come to an end, especially because, like, there were some, like, stuff set up or, like, implied that never really came to pass involving the characters. That's unfortunate. But, alas, it just is how it is, I guess. I guess this was just Mago-chan's time to end. I think it's very unfortunate, but... I enjoyed the series, and I think it's a consistently enjoyable series all throughout, even if it came to kind of an abrupt end. And for what it's worth, I think like it managed to find closure at the point where it stopped pretty well for having to end clearly abruptly. So I think that's much appreciated. Mm-hmm. Now, my question is, would this be a candidate for a jump stop episode in the future? It really depends on how you want to qualify jump stops. 
I mean, if we were going to consider Robot Laser Beam for it, then Mago-chan has only run like, you know, 10-ish chapters longer than that. So it, I guess it's in the same ballpark. And it clearly it was ended prematurely before the author intended. So in that respect, I mean, it was stopped. Jump did put a stop to this series. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, that, that's a shame. Like, when I first heard rumblings about, like, Magu-chan coming to an end, like, I am a little behind. I still need, uh, I still have a few chapters I need to catch up on. But, you know, from kind of skimming, like, the second to last chapter, I, I wasn't sure if it was, like, actually coming to an end or if it was one of those things where it's, like... Like, like a Dragon Ball thing where it's like, oh, this looks like a point where it could clearly end, but it's like, oh, no, there's definitely coming. There's definitely more coming or whatever. I wasn't sure it was like one of those things. Yeah, I mean, it, it had a message saying this is the end of Mako-chan got destruction, but there's still a little more, though, because I mean, I imagine Kamiki want had like, OK, this is going to be like the the closure to these characters, but then we're going to have like an epilogue next week or like I can't like... I couldn't fit in another chapter in between, like, this ending and then the conclusion of the UP Suzu arc before. Like, I couldn't drag that out another chapter, or I couldn't, like, find something to put in between that chapter and then this ending I had in mind. Or he just had, like, a, a different epilogue. He also wanted to do an addition to this ending, so... Okay. And I guess timing-wise, like, yeah, it, it makes more sense for the end next week, as we'll mention, you know, there are new Jump series coming on the 13th and the 20th, replacing Magu. Potentially, there could be something else ending, but, I mean, it's anyone's guess what that could be, because uh, there's no real clear tells, because PvPPP is safe, because it's getting a color page, or it's ha it's gotten a color page, and it's getting more push, and so, unless they, like, Shugamaru like super early I struggle to think about what else could be ending unless stone like really ends in like three chapters which it's close to an ending but I can't imagine it just ends in just that short of time so I mean what they could do is like they could end it and jump and maybe dedicate like another jump giga run to it maybe possibly or, or maybe extra uh, chapters on like jump plus or something for stone or for... for for stone yeah i don't know why they would do that i i mean it potentially it could just be magu is the only series that's something that's true yeah they have been having kind of like a rotating one shot spot and so they could just not have that spot open for a time while they like let stone come to its kind of natural end because i think it's ending sooner rather than later than this point but We'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, we'll know more. Heck, we'll probably know more by the time you're actually listening to this episode, maybe. <laughs> probably. But yeah, I mean, it's very sad to see Magu go. But I think the series has been enjoyable all throughout. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we might as well just mention, yeah, I mean... We have two new Jump series coming, and I think one of them will probably already be out by the time you're listening to this. That series being Akane Banashi, which is going to be a Rakugo manga, actually. It's going to be kind of about a family of Rakugo storytellers in competition with each other, which is pretty cool. It's cool to see another Rakugo-focused manga, especially com one coming to Jump, and uh, especially... 
you know, this series looks like it will be starring a female lead, so it's good to see another one of those series as well. Another series emphasizing its female protagonist as the center, which I like seeing. And this is a, the return of Takamasu Moe, who did Ole Galasso, someone who previously tried a jump series and really worked out, returning to the magazine with a new series, and hopefully this one pans out better. No, for sure. Um, I'm really looking forward to this one in particular, um, just because I, you know, for, from the little I read of Ole Galazzo when that was originally like a jump start back in the day, you know, I liked what I read of that. And then um, I forget the name of it, but they, they did like a like a space focused one shot back in the day that I also read as well that I thought was really, really super good. Um, so I, I really liked what I've read of their stuff. And I mean, just in general, I think a story about Rakugo in Shonen Jump, that's really interesting to me. It kind of gives me the same feelings as PPPPPP, where it's like, oh, this is like a like a performing arts sort of, you know, focus series. And I'm I'm kind of wondering how it's going to do compared to that. Like, I'm I'm really hoping these kinds of series like stay long enough in the magazine to really gain an audience like like with PPPPPP, you know, hopefully is gaining it looks like maybe. I don't know. Indeed, I would like to see it catch on because... Yeah, I mean, I appreciate series that are about, like, non-traditional focuses, like, not traditional sports series, but yeah, a series about performing arts, so uh, it's good to see that PvPvP seems to be gaining some traction, or at least, like, Jump is trying to give it a chance, and it's getting more of a following, and hopefully, like, the art of this teaser visual is very strong. Oh, yeah. So, I think... With enough appeal and enough interesting storytelling, like, this could also attract interest. And that'd be nice to see. The other series that is going to be starting on the 20th is Child of the Yard by Hideo Shinkai, who is probably best known for their Soul Catcher series that ran for quite a while, first starting in Jump and then moving to Jump Plus, ultimately having, like, a well, healthy 11 volume run. So they previously had kind of a successful series before, and now they're returning to the main magazine with their next series. And this is kind of going to be like a, a romance series. So it'll be interesting to see how this pans out. I never really checked out a lot of their stuff, but uh, I've always been interested in like reading Soul Catchers because I've, I've heard interesting things about it. And uh, yeah, I think they also did a, a soccer manga, Doi Soul, I believe it's called. Or no, no, no. I'm sorry. Lightwing. I think they did Lightwing. Yeah, Lightwing. I, I weirdly always get the two confused for some reason, and I don't know why. Um, <laughs> mm. um but yeah, no, so I, I'm at least aware of their work. So I'm, I'm really glad that I'm going to get the chance to read their works in English for the first time, which is good. Um, in general, I'm, I'm really interested in checking these out. Um, obviously, we'll probably try to talk about these in our next actual like news catch up episode uh, if we have the time. But uh, I do want to talk about these when they're out eventually because I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in reading both of these. Yeah, I think these are, like, interesting premises for these new series, and I'll be curious to see how they pan out. Mm -hmm. And I think Jump's in a good state in terms of variety, and it'll be interesting to see, like, what comes and goes. It's surprising, because I think some recent Jump stuff has, like, really caught on, like, PvPPP is sticking around, but also Doron Dororon seems to have, like, kind of some momentum going for it, even more so than perhaps Ayashimon, so it's going to be interesting to see, like, what ends up sticking around long-term. And, uh, I mean, stuff slots will open up with Dr. Stone leaving, but, like, 
could it's gonna be it's gonna be tough competition for the new series i think i was gonna say like dr stone leaving this year my hero academia probably ending with the next year i don't know if it'll end next this year maybe next year I think it's definitely going to end in 2023, but I mean, I don't, I don't think it's going to end before then. But I mean, if, if like MHA is on its way out the door, is all I was saying, basically. So, yeah, a lot, lot of, lot of big shoes to fill, you know. But yeah, I mean, other things that we'll mention ending in terms of serializations. Planet Wit, we mentioned it was coming to an end last time, and now we'll just have the update that it is confirmed to end with the eighth volume. So overall, pretty good run. Actually ran longer in terms of page count than Spirit Circle. So yeah, pretty good run for the manga of Planet Wet. And yeah, I'm interesting to dive back into to see how it like ultimately compared with the anime full length. So yeah. And the last piece of news to mention, which is pretty exciting in terms of new civilizations, is that Yuki Kadama, creator of Bloodlad's new manga that we mentioned before that they are coming on a new series. The new series, World of Summoning, is going to actually have a worldwide simultaneous release in English and French. And this will probably be courtesy of Kadansha, so that's pretty cool. And it'll probably be out by the time you're listening to this, because the manga is coming out on Basatsu on February 9th, so probably by the time you're listening to this, it has already come out and if so it'll probably be something we'll discuss on our next news episode with the new jump sign clubs so it'll be pretty cool cool to see another attempt of a global simul pub from kadansha right from chapter one much like they did with ashidaka and yeah i'm looking forward to read another work of kadama since i did quite enjoy blood lad back in the day Mm-hmm. I've never read or seen Blood Lad, so I'm interested in checking out Kodama's works. Mm-hmm. But that does it for our serialization updates, and we'll save other news for next time, our next news episode. But let us move on now to discussing our Simulpub roundup for today. And this will start off with our one-shot, and as has been happening intermittently, more frequently in the past year than previous, is that we got a new chapter of Shokugeki no Sanji by Food Wars creators Yuta, Sakuna, and Shinseki, chapter 5, and this moves the story to Wano Country. You know, every chapter of Shokugeki no Sanji, we've kind of been progressing further and further into the story in terms of when the story takes place, and now we're falling in Wano, which makes me curious, like, when will the next chapter take place? Mm -hmm. But this basically goes to explain how Sanji opened that soba shop we saw him open in the capital of Wano in the story. And basically what happened is like, you know, Sanji is contemplating what kind of restaurant he wants to open because they're trying to like open restaurants in order to kind of attract and vet like potential powerful samurai to be their allies in, you know, the upcoming battle. And so he and Usopp end up finding this local soba that people are really clamoring over and solving over and they try and they're very impressed with the taste. But then Sanji gets very angry when he notices that the stall that sells the soba is selling soba with less buckwheat to poorer customers who wouldn't be able to taste or know the difference. And, you know, he confronts the soba Soba peddlers, but like they say, oh, we're back by Yakuza or whatever. You don't want to mess with us. So Sanji challenges the soba peddlers to a cooking battle, a veritable shokugeki instead, and they're gonna have competing soba dishes. And if you know Sanji wins, he gets their stall. And the soba stall shop owner buys up all the best buckwheat flour and ingredients. So Sanji has to improvise, and he 
kind of figures out, oh, I'll use this koi fish in my broth and that'll enhance my soba's flavors through the mizu-miwashi technique, which is like kind of washing over the soba multiple times and kind of deepening the flavor of the noodles that way. So, you know, he didn't have the best ingredients, but he was able to enhance the flavor just through his technique and other ingredients that he was able to combine together. And so ultimately, you know, in the process of cooking that dish, the soba-style boss, you know, gets to be made aware of Sanji's wonder board and gets to me aware of oh my god this is Sanji I love this guy this guy's my <laughs> idol I, I would spend my nights just dreaming about him and like admiring him he basically is Barto for Sanji you know he's he is what Barto is to Luffy he, this guy is to Sanji so you know he immediately like kind of gets into Sanji and his soba and you know Sanji's soba's a big hit and so Sanji takes over the stall and he starts telling Soba like we saw in the main story but of course as we saw in the main story it doesn't exactly work in attracting the powerful samurai because it you know, the my customers are just uh, mainly young women. So, yeah, like, uh, it's, it's a fun little story. You know, pretty amusing. I like, you know, this is interesting. This finally kind of puts the Shokugeki in the title of Shokugeki no Sanji. Oh, this is like actual, like, competition that Sanji's in with another chef over ingredients. And that actually felt kind of nostalgic. Like, oh, this is like really reading a chapter of Food Wars. This felt like a chapter of Food Wars and a tactic that like Soma would figure out in order to like improve the flavors dish, even being put at a disadvantage of not having the best ingredients. And so I quite enjoyed it uh, from that perspective. So yeah, overall, I thought it was pretty fun. I did like the twist that the the Soma shop owner was just a huge Sanji fanboy. (laughs) That was quite amusing. No, yeah, this was this was a good chapter of uh, Shokugeki no Sanji. And yeah, actually, yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about it. But yeah, this is definitely the most food wars of this uh, Sanji spinoff series now, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I really liked it too. You know, thinking back on it, I'm kind of surprised that like this isn't like... Because, you know, you were mentioning how like, yeah, the, this takes place in Wado country. And this explains, you know, how and why Sanji opened up a soba shop. You know, because that's what he does in the main series as well. Um, I think that's a good, like, expansion of the original material. I really appreciate that. I'm kind of surprised that, like, this isn't just an episode of the anime. I actually would have really enjoyed it if the anime, like, took advantage of that kind of thing. No, it does feel like kind of an anime original concept almost. Or, like, a concept you would see, like, an anime original episode. Like, Sanji just getting into, like, a competition with a fellow chef over, like, kind of philosophy of, like, what's best agreements or how to treat customers. Because it is like the Rogue Town filler or yeah, the yeah. one in G8 to me, like in terms of like Sanji's challenge to make a dish kind of at a disadvantage and he pulls it off. Like especially that G8 one, which was a very memorable episode. One of my favorites was like he just used the scraps in the kitchen to make like the, the most delicious dishes that these soldiers have ever tasted. So yeah, I, I think again, it's nice to see stories that emphasize Sanji's ingenuity as a chef. You know, and his like philosophy of like treating all his customers well and making them like delicious food that is like nourishing and energizing and all that stuff. I I think my favorite bit in this chapter is um, Usopp uh, uh, loudly, whisperingly uh, proclaiming that Sanji is actually Black Lake Sanji. (laughs) I, I thought that was a pretty good bit, actually. And man, the panel of Sanji like shaded with harsh black shadows as he's saying like any scum that cheats their customers i'll make sure they'll know it's in the kitchen again 
That's a cool panel, and it's oh, also yeah. such a Soma line. So, yeah. <laughs> this is definitely the most shokugeki that Sokugeki Sanji has ever felt. <laughs> yeah, Sanji definitely gave off a lot of Soma vibes in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think. I think um, I'm, I'm, like, quickly trying to go through the other chapters right now to re- remember. Um, I think I would put this one, if, if we had to rank them now, I guess, I would put this story right under chapter two. As like my third favorite chapter of this of this series, I guess. I do think chapter two of the original or chapter two of this series is still like the best one. Uh, but this is probably like my second favorite, honestly. Yeah, I think this was a pretty satisfying one. So yeah, I would say this probably I would agree. Chapter two is the best still, but this I could put, yeah, maybe second place. And yeah, I guess at this point, like the weakest chapter was the first one, because even for like even uh, honestly, like they portrayed the new comma uh, queendom people a lot better than Oda did in his main series. So that they actually, sure did, yeah. like dodged a huge bullet in terms of the transphobia. So that definitely puts it a step above because it also like again, showed off Sanji's creativity and making a nourishing dish just from like forest ingredients and then making a dish that he actually ended up making in the main story, which was pretty cool. So yeah, no, this was a good chapter. Every chapter has become kind of very solidly entertaining and something to look forward to. And we must be approaching the point, if we haven't already, of enough chapters to fill out a volume. So I'll be curious to see how many more chapters of this we'll get. Because I know Oda, in an interview a long time back, mentioned that he wanted to see this get animated at some point. So I don't know, like, how many chapters they'll need in order to do that. Like, at, at what kind of capacity that an anime of this could get produced, like, as OVAs or a one-core anime. <laughs> so we'll see. That, that'd be cool. Oh man, I I, I could I could see people being up for that. Uh, tw- twelve episodes of Shakugeki no Sanji. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it'd be fun. I think that you'd have to add more to these stories, but I think these stories could like each chapter fill up a half hour episode. I think so too. Yeah, I'd even be fine with an OVA, honestly. Yeah. But yeah, no. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, they. I I do remember seeing that around too and i don't i don't know i'm still interested in seeing if that's ever going to come to fruition but i i guess we'll see i'm i'm just i'm just kind of more interested in like what else this miniseries can do now that it's reached the point where the main series is at technically or if like maybe they'll just like go back to an earlier arc if they want to do another story in this series i don't know i'm just i'm I'm more interested in where shokugeki no sanji can go next absolutely um but yeah good good chapter i enjoyed it but uh, we should probably move on to uh, t- some more Shueisha stuff. But uh, two Manga Plus series got added recently. Uh, one of them literally got added the day we were recording this. Yeah. And it's pretty cool to see Manga Plus, you know, add some new series under their belt and, you know, diversify their lineup a bit. And these are two pretty cool new series. And starting off with the first new edition of theirs, we have Majin Mierko LTD by Seke Wata and Yue Oki. This debuted on Jump Plus last fall, so they'll probably be able to catch up with this in a few weeks, honestly, at a rate of two chapters a week. But this is set in a world where, like, magical girls are basically kind of just professional exterminators, and they work under various, like, companies and agencies. Like, a magical girl is, like, a generic term in this world for people who, like, carry out Kai exterminations. There are, like, 500 different companies of, like, magical girl agencies. 
And the protagonist is a girl called Kana Sakuragi, who, you know, is going job hunting. And, you know, she is very good at doing her research and learning things. And she has a really good work ethic. But she hasn't really been able to succeed at, you know, attracting, like, any leads in terms of getting a job. Because even though, like, she is a hard worker, there, I guess... At least in the first interview we see her take, there isn't like a sense of like her own like kind of originality and unique strengths that attract people to her. Even though she's like clearly very helpful because we see her immediately go to a coffee shop and like help the like receptionist remember orders, recent orders of like last three customers. So, you know, she just wants to be of help to people. That's all her dream is. Eventually, like she ends up interviewing with a finance company that because they left the room abandoned and cold for too long manifested like a kai which are like just mysterious phenomenon and creatures created by that phenomena and so that calls like the nearby magical girl agency magi lumiere who sends their kind of chief and so far, I think the only magical girl under the employee, Koshigaya, you know, to the scene. And she starts fighting the Kai, but like, it's pretty strong. It's way above like what she can handle by herself, you know, without like causing big damage and stuff. And she also hasn't quite gotten the hand of like her new like magical girl tool, which is like kind of like a iPad touchscreen that kind of regulates like what kind of magic she can use. So it's very difficult to like handle that device and perform like her like magical girl at the same time but that's when Kana steps up to help and she's like hey you know I have kind of learned about like this different tool when I did a different like kind of interview so I know how to operate it and so she helps Sakuraki out and she helps Koshigaya out and basically like she knows the device even better than Koshigaya does and so yeah they end up exterminating the Kai and afterward like, you know, she is invited to apply to Magic Lumiere because they're looking for new magical girls to basically kind of help alleviate Koshikai's workload. And so, yeah, she joins the company and, you know, she, you know, does quite have like the physical aptitude or like the start she's not, you know, got super the hang of everything like the second chapter is all about her like kind of learning how to fly the broom and like just doing it like kind of intuitively doesn't work you know she just crashes a lot and Koshi guy is not much help in coaching because like you go boom and then broom or something <laughs> you know she just she, he doesn't give very good directions but yeah i mean she just starts like reading the manuals and learning a bunch of stuff because that's like her strength her strength is just like kind of doing the research and then just memorizing things and then being able to apply what she's learned and yeah so now she's kind of being put in the field right away though so we're gonna see like how that turns out and i'm pretty keen interested i think the characters are very compelling this is a nice take on magical girl premise it's not a uncommon take to reframe magical girls in the lens of like kind of corporatized uh structures or put it through like the lens of like business and capitalism and whatnot but you know i think it's a compelling take of like you know sakuragi is someone who just really wanted to be of help to people and she finds like hey like this is a opportunity like this is a dream like i didn't think like i could do like as a kid but like this is something that i could actually help and i do have like the ability to be useful in the setting and in this environment and i think that's 
really nice transmission. I think the art's super cool. I like uh, the idea of how they do the magical girl transformation. I like the idea of like magical girls in this world integrate like kind of this technological application that kind of is the source of their transformations and their powers, which is an interesting concept. And yeah, I think the main characters at the Magical Meteor Agency seem fun so far. Like the like super nerdy engineer guy who just gets really obsessed with like coming up with cute costumes and what and uh, abilities and whatnot the company president yeah the company president who is like dressed in magical girl cosplay and he reminds me a lot of goto from path the bird i mean his face is very similar his kind of uh, general demeanor i can see that actually yeah uh, like being straightforward and kind of aloof but also pretty good mentor and pretty uh aware and insightful as well so he has a fun personality to him and yeah i think koshigai is also pretty fun and how also laid back and carefree it is and i like her design and yeah i just enjoying this series so far it's cool to see a new like kind of magical girl action series and like also focused on like you know, adults work in a career as well. So it's a cool combination of different interests done very well. So looking forward to following this for sure. Yeah, I thought this was interesting too. I really like a lot of the different aspects of the, like you said, you know, the series focuses on adults and, you know, adults basically trying to make it by in the magical girl industry, I guess. Um, Definitely not the kind of thing I would really expect from like regular Shonen Jump, which I think it makes sense why this is like on Jump Plus in particular. This is the kind of stuff I expect from Jump Plus specifically, I think. But, uh, you know, I I thought this was interesting. I, I would definitely read more of this. I also appreciate how, like, uh, really, I appreciate any story that, like, focuses on how, like, totally useless bureaucracy is, totally, because, like, we have all that stuff with Koshigaya, you know, coming in to uh, defeat the Kai, and, you know, she clearly can't do it herself, so she needs someone to help her, and the and the two guys who called her is like, oh, well, are you gonna, like, give us a discount on the fee, or, you know, if we have to send somebody, yeah. we're gonna have to, like, do all this paperwork, and it's like, I mean, guys, come on. that's another thing that reminds me of Pathlover, <laughs> is just the bureaucracy and the inanity of, like, you know, all these different, like, structures that you have to go through, all these other, like, procedures and these other financial concerns that are, like, at the root of everything that is preventing the people to do their jobs. Oftentimes, you know, in Path Labor, like, their police force are so legitimate, so, like, there should be some oversight, but it's also to the point of, like, kind of ridiculousness or futility. And in this case, it's also, like, to the point of pedantry of, like, oh, well, you know, this is, like, a life-training situation of, like, this Kai destroying this building and attacking people but like their primary concerns are like their bottom line like how much it's gonna cost them to <laughs> exercise this thing so i appreciate pointing out that absurdity and also like those finance guys like they do they feel very realistic in terms of like you know yep. how pig-headed they are like they didn't really even know their like kind of knew their company better than they did because she brought up in the interview <laughs> oh i read that your president was talking about opening theme parks in india and it researched like how what the state of the indian theme park industry and this guy was like what is she talking about it but then the other guy was like oh i think our president did make do a recent interview in india about that and he was like ah but he like doesn't take responsibility they're like oh i was wrong my bad but it's like oh no in fact like i, I think they even kind of like looked down on her for like knowing so much about their company like oh she's like really obsessed or whatever like woof. <laughs> 
Uh, so yeah, they, they, they can't take the, uh, the idea of someone, uh, you know, knowing better than they do. Yeah. yeah. That, that, no. that all definitely feels very realistic, quite honestly. And I really enjoyed that aspect about the series so far. But yeah, no, I, I don't really have like a whole ton else to say. I just, I just think this is a really interesting concept. If not, you know, again, not, an, not a totally original concept, you know, the idea of taking something like magical girls or like superheroes, like in the case of maybe like One Punch Man, where it's like, again, viewing them through like this corporate capital lens or whatever. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of been done before, but it's still, it's still like an always interesting take on those particular stories, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know, like, if there's going to be, like, any commentary or critique of, like, you know, treating magical girls as, like, kind of, like, freelance, uh, well, they're exterminators in this case, so that kind of removes them for some, like, kind of comparison to, like, law enforcement, or, like, again, with hero, you know, culture in MHA and One Punch Man, but also, like, you know, it had all the layers of, like, government regulation and bureaucracy that they'll have to deal with, and yeah. I think it, I mean, I don't know if it will go deep into that, but it's interesting to see the commentary on that so far in these early chapters. And I think overall the characters are fun. Yeah. And the concept and, you know, the execution of like how magical girls work in this world is very interesting. So I'm curious to see like how far it goes. And I just think Kana is a very compelling character. So I like seeing her like kind of find a way to kind of be able to put her strengths and like, you know, being a good student in terms of learning things, memorizing things and being able to put that into practice, like in a field that, you know, could really use someone like that as was demonstrated in the first chapter. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think I think overall, I'll definitely keep an eye out for this one. I don't know if I would read it week to week, but I I definitely want to like come back to it at some point. Mm hmm. I definitely want to read more. Yeah, no. I mean, I this hits a bunch of sweet spots to me in terms of things I'm interested in. So yeah, I'm super jazzed about this one. The next series we've got to cover is also quite fun and interesting. And that is The Kajiki Chief, Divine Cuisine by Tsunami Suzuki. And this one is... Uh, another take on like, you know, kind of a cooking battle manga in the same vein as like Toriko or Ryoko. So, you know, if you were itching or hungry for a series like Toriko, but don't want to, you know, support Super Booker anymore for various reasons. Or if you like have always wanted to check out Ryoko, but didn't want to because it isn't like legally licensed in English. Uh, this is, might be a good substitute because this follows... You know, this is set in a world where they're like kind of monsters, quote unquote, Kokajiki, which are really like, you know, kind of got more godly versions of animals. Like they are bigger, they have more powers, and oftentimes they're, they, so far they take the form as like fish or sea and aquatic life that are flying through the sky. And it's said that, you know, Kajiki, like they have like special restorative powers. They were originally like a, a food that was meant to be a feast for gods, but like they are something that, you know, common people like they do hunt and eat their meat and the story starts off with like kind of the son of a local restaurant owner Toya he makes a lot of dishes and cooks by himself he's not really allowed to cook in his own restaurant's kitchen because his dad his adopted father really looks down on him even though he's set to be like you know inherit the restaurant like 
because he wasn't, you know, he a great chef when he was super young when he was training him. He was always just continuing to look down on him and treat him so harshly. But he has grown up to be a great chef and create very tasty meals, which has attracted the attention of kind of a local kind of like noble princess called Azayo Kukoi, who's you know, been his friend ever since they were kids. Like, she just kind of ended up coming across as a stone and, like, tasting his food when she was a kid. And ever since, like, she has always enjoyed the taste of his meals that he made because they're, like, just full of love and soul. And so she always, like, goes to meet him and try his food and stuff. And, um, you know, after one such day of, like, him just hanging out with her, he ends up coming home with, like, kind of a bag of sugar that she gifted him. And that makes his dad, like, angry at him because he thinks he, like, wasted money buying the sugar. And you just hear him out that, like, oh, no, it was given to me as a gift. And he also is angry that he's just hanging out with his Ayo anyway because of how important her family is and if something bad happened to her you know it damaged his restaurant reputation and whatnot but and so he punishes him by like forcing him to sharpen all the shop's knives while like the other chefs like basically steal his sugar and whatnot and basically as Ayoi comes to visit him and give him sweets and cheer him up and as like she's like hanging around him like he manages to clear the rust off of one of the knives which has like an engraving on it called Hero Organe, then that's the name of a knife. And all of a sudden, at that moment, they are attacked by a giant salmon shark Kajiki. And in protecting Toya, Izayu, you know, pushes him out of the way of the shark, and her arm gets bitten off. And she starts bleeding really badly. And so, like, Toya is distraught of, like, what to do. And that's when, like, he hears a voice. And he's been hearing a voice all this time. not know where it comes to And this is where the reveal is. The voice is actually coming from the knife he just cleared off. And in clearing off the rice, he kind of restored the knife to being a Sukugogami. And so he can communicate with Toya and give him instructions and basically say, Hey, if you wield me, you know, I used to be, I'm a knife now, but I used to be a sword. If you wield me, we can fight the salmon shark Kajiki and feed its flesh to its Ayoi, and that will stop her bleeding because its flesh has like very, you know, nutritious properties of the Kajiki. It'll, it can heal wounds. And so he wields the Hirogane and the knife you know, transforms into more of a sword-like blade form and he's able to, like, carve it up. He himself, yeah, yeah, he basically, like, just slice it up, the Sandwich Shark And, yeah, he succeeds in, like, creating, like, a, like, a Sandwich Shark like, miso bonito dish for a Zayoi, and it works in stopping the bleeding. And it seems to have, like, bestowed upon her some sort of magical glow, which hasn't, like, been kind of explored further yet, but potentially it could, the eating Kajiki flesh could bestow people with, like, powers or even beyond just healing them. But going on from there, like, you know, she's still missing an arm, and Hirogane basically saying, oh, you know, there is another Kajiki that we can go after. And if we get its flesh, we can basically, you know, be able to restore her harm. And he wants to go, Toya wants to go and do that. But like her grandfather, he blames him and doesn't really trust him to be able to do the job. And instead, like goes off to recruit a bunch of within towns people who is strong enough to wield Hirogane and go to hunt for the Kajiki themselves while locking Toya away in a jail. Of course this goes very awry because in their attempts to like kind of defeat Kajiki by throwing stones at them they just cause Kajiki to attack them and so you know Toya gets out and he takes up Hirogane again and 
you know, to fight them off. And at that point, I'm sure he will prove to the grandfather that, yeah, you know, he is capable of going on the mission to hunt for the Kajiki that will, in eating its flesh, restore Izayo's arm. And also, Hirogane also has his own motives, it seems, uh, that ties to his past of his relationship with his previous wielder and his previous existence as a sword, and also his interest in, like, finding and slaughtering, like, a particular Kajiki of interest to him that whose identity we don't quite know yet, but yeah, it's an interesting hook. And yeah, I mean, this is a. This is just like a fun kind of battle action premise with a food team, uh, like the aforementioned examples of Soriko Ryoko, with compelling characters and cool art style, a good kind of aesthetic to it, of like Meiji era-ish aesthetic. So yeah, I, I think it's a lot of fun so far, and I think, yeah, it's, it's compelling. I really like this, actually. Um, I think out of the two new Manga Plus titles, I think this is the one I really want to keep up with the most, actually. Yeah, I, I don't know. This this was just really good, because, like, I mentioned earlier, like, this literally got put on Manga Plus, like, the day we're recording this, so, like, I had no idea what to expect. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a roller coaster reading that first chapter, because, like, I just kind of thought, like, oh, man, this is going to be, like, a nice, like, kind of sort of, like, chill series. Like, you know, no nothing, like, too bad will happen. Some, some kid's going to go out and, like, catch some magical fish or something. It's going to be nice. And he has his, like, his childhood friend or whatever that, like... He, he kind of like, you know, just kind of thinks it's annoying or whatever. And it's kind of cute. And then, uh, and then, you know, she gets her arm bit off by a shark. You know, that was, um, that was definitely around the point where I was just like, oh no, what is going on? And I really like a lot of the art for that moment in particular. That page of like the shark just coming right at him, like really scared the shit out of me, quite honestly. And the big two-page spread of, like, Izayoi's arm getting bitten off, like, oof. Like, th th things really went from, like, zero to 100 really fast. Like, it was, uh, th I think that was the point where I was like, oh, man, what's gonna happen next? Like, th this really had me hooked. Yeah, I think the action in this series is quite brutal and uh, very well drawn. Like, I think the two-page spread of him cutting up the Salmon Shark Kajuki is a really cool spread. Ooh, yeah. And it's also very graphic visceral, which is pretty neat and i think that yeah the heightened like physical action like and it really it complements like the heightened emotions of the scene so mm -hmm. it really kind of gets it invested gets it in by like what's going on and i think like the author is also very good at like drawing like kind of really powerful facial expressions particularly in the way they draw eyes so those are very striking and they also do a lot to emotionally connect you with the characters and their feelings oh no i i think i really love toya as a main character because like you know he, he's sort of this plucky kid who just wants to be a good chef but like you know his adoptive father who's honestly kind of an asshole like he, he really treats him like shit and i really feel terrible for him like i, I mm -hmm. think i i think i think his like sort of character arc of like wanting to be like a good chef and maybe even sort of wanting the approval of his father maybe that's just my guess but maybe that's not it really you know just wanting some kind of approval for his skills and you know Izayoi you know even though you know he, he kind of sees her as a nuisance at first you know we find out like oh she doesn't really have any friends or whatever so he kind of feels sorry for her yeah but I mean then he comes to like the realization in the process of like you know finding a Jiki of like oh all this time, it's really like Izayoi who is looking out for me. I'm the one who didn't, you know, didn't have friends, and I'm she was coming out 
out to look out for me and look out for and she's always been considerate of my feelings and also she's the one who you know because th- th- this whole time we're being told by his father like oh well you're a bad chef and you don't deserve to work in this kitchen when really you know Izayoi is the one who sees that like you know even if toya isn't like necessarily like an amazing chef he basically cooks with love like his cooking yeah. is earnest and she's she's the only one who sees that and man that's that's powerful to me. I actually, it kind of made me tear up a little bit. It was really nice. Yeah, it's very sweet. Um, but yeah, man, I don't know. I, th- there's there's a lot about this series that like really clicks with me and really like touches on all the right things and presses all the right buttons. It like it just makes me really want to read the rest. Like I'm I'm super excited for like where this could go. Yeah, there's a strong emotional hook and core to the series. There's a lot of interesting kind of background lore and things set up that is interesting to see like where it'll go. So I think, yeah, it's another interesting take on like kind of the food battle manga kind of premise. And I think it's got a very strong start. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. And I think overall, yeah, I really liked both of these new Manga Plus editions. And I think they are great additions to the app and site. And I look forward to continuing to follow both of them. I lean tomorrow's Battle of the Year, but, you know, I think both of these series are, like, very strong and have very good, like, kind of emotional centers to them, in addition to having creative premises and very strong art. Oh, for sure, yep. I mean, but, but both of these were great, um, and I, I definitely want to, like, try to keep up with both of them, you know, amongst all the other things I read, admittedly, but I do want to keep reading them is the important thing. Um, but yeah, I think that about does it for our thoughts on the new Manga Plus titles. And I think we should get on to a new manga from the Manga Splaining podcast. We should probably give like some context to this before we talk about this next title. Yeah, so Manga Splaining, of course, is, you know, the very beloved manga podcast that is done by Deb Oiki, Chris Butcher, David Brothers, and Jitsarski. And you know, they've really been breakouts uh, in the manga community like... Everyone loves them, us included. Oh, yeah. And, of course, you know, one of the strengths of the podcast is that they're all working in the comics industry. They're comics industry vets. And as such, they also have, you know, connections in terms of, like, connections with publishers in the industry and such. And so now they are kind of working with Substack uh, to publish manga under kind of their own imprint as MXX, Manga Explaining Extra. And their goal is to, like, you know, publish a variety of different Japanese manga from a lot of different genres, mostly focusing on kind of, like, indie underground type titles. And this is mainly a project by Deb and Christopher and his husband, Andrew, and with help from their friend and translator in contact in Japan, Aki. And, of course, you know, a team of translators and letterers they also are working with to actually localize and publish the series. And so, yeah, I mean, basically the idea is that every week on Fridays, they are going to publish, like, a new chapter of manga that they'll send out to their Substack subscribers at their $5 tier. So yeah, if you subscribe to them and do the $5 subscription, you'll get like a free volume of manga like every week. And yeah, so the first like title they are starting off with is Okinawa by Suzumihiga, which Okinawa is actually a collection of two different works by Suzumihiga, two different collections of stories by the author. 
The first sort of sand kind of explores Okinawa and how it was affected by the Battle of Okinawa in World War II. Whereas Maui focuses on how the occupation of Okinawa by soldiers, U.S. soldiers in the aftermath of World War II affected the culture and the spirit Maui in the local language of the island. And there's more history behind this title in particular, because this was a title that Chris was trying to get published with Fantagraphics for a few years, actually. And I mean, we can just link you to their full post, like explaining the background of the publishing history of this. But basically what happened is like, you know, they used to work for the Beguiling and as part of, you know, working there, like whenever they went to Japan, like he was like trying to discover like, you know, cool new indie titles or like manga they could publish. One of those titles was, you know, a book from Suzumi Higa that he found, like, super interesting. But, you know, Beguiling didn't really go for him. But eventually, like, he wanted to really, like, put the works out there. So he kind of contacted Jocelyn Allen and, you know, they kind of started talking about starting their own kind of, like, publishing imprint themselves. And they were going to call it Prison Publishing. And so then they reached out to Higa and they managed to get like him to, you know, agree and and like publishing their work and like being their first public author. And he was interested in it and they met with him. And he gave them a tour at Okinawa and talked to them about his history and all that stuff. And so they were excited about the project. And then they started working on it and they reached out to Fanographics for distribution as part of a Kickstarter campaign. And they even got a solicited. So there's still the Amazon listing if you look it up, which you know, Chris says he's going to get to take it down at some point. But, you know, still up there. But basically why it didn't pan out is just Chris kind of, ended up stretching himself tin because you know he wears a lot of hats he was like director of tcaf he works uh, at viz you know all that stuff so he was very busy and he just the project just never got off the ground but now you know in the pandemic era you know a lot of his slate is cleared he was able to like you know think about doing the project again and so has kind of worked back around to talking with everyone who was like evolved, including Fanographics and Jocelyn and all that. So yeah, they basically also got the opportunity to publish through Substack. And that's how this project is really getting off the ground. And that's how they're going to kind of start getting the book out there is that they're going to publish Okinawa, which is like 14 chapters in all kind of. Uh, on a weekly basis, a new chapter like every week, about three chapters a month until it's finished. Chapters will be available through Substack for about a year, but they can be downloaded in like PDF and CBZ form. So you can keep those files for as long as you want if you have subscribed to Substack. And yeah, like basically, eventually the book will go out into print in late 2022 by up. So that's pretty cool. And in addition to the Okinawa book by Suzumi Higa, they are also going to be doing a one-shot by Taiyo Matsumoto called These Days, and that will be publishing pretty soon. This book is kind of a, an interesting story about manga publishing and kind of being in between careers and places. I mean, Lost Life, like it's a... A sort of a prototype manga that was like kind of like a proof of concept kind of thing that wasn't like that was like made and drawn outside the traditional publishing structure, which makes it interesting. And it was like remade into like a story that ended up being serialized by Matsumoto called Tokyo Higuro. But they are publishing the original one shot that eventually became that series and it's going to be exclusively available on MSX. 
So you can only read its statistics. And yeah, that'll probably be available in the near future. Like this is going to be available on February 25th. So by the end of the month. So that'll be pretty cool. And I think they'll probably continue to like try and uh, work in more like unique kind of one shots or shorter form series too. That'll probably be exclusives to there. Well, longer series might, you know, be serialized on their sub stack and then eventually kind of collected in print by another publisher, like in the case with Okinawa and Fantagraphics. And yeah, that is pretty cool. And yeah, like Okinawa, um, as written before, translated by Jocelyn Allen, led by Patrick Crotty, and edited by Andrew Butcher. Yeah, basically you can like you can like subscribe to their Substack for free to at least get this first chapter, but you do have to get a paid subscription to it's only like $5 a month, which uh, I haven't subscribed yet, but I, I think I'm going to subscribe soon, actually. Yeah, and for an annual subscription, it's 50 a year, so you'll save like 10 off of a monthly, a per month subscription. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to subscribe soon, I think. Mm-hmm. Ovi Lord already got our subscription, so yeah, we're definitely looking forward to following along with Okinawa and uh, all the other cool manga publishing by MSX and Manga Explaining. They're cool, cool people, and these are cool comics that they're publishing, and as is the case with Okinawa, which we're going to talk about now. Like, this first chapter of Okinawa, and I don't know how, like, connected all the stories in the book are, but, you know, the first set of stories in Okinawa draws from Higa's Sword of Sand collection, which, again, as mentioned before, are really focused on like how Okinawa was affected by the Battle of Okinawa and World War II in general. And so this first chapter kind of follows like what happens when like a Navy captain of a garrison like you know, brings his regiment to station on Okinawa. And he's greeted by, like, you know, the chief of course, but also Umisato, who kind of becomes his main liaison and contact on the island. And he is, like, an ex-soldier turned school teacher, and he kind of looks out for the other residents of the island because he's an outsider who came in with his wife to kind of, you know, help, like, educate the folks there, you know, by starting up a school and stuff. Like, it's mentioned later in the chapter, like, you know, they didn't really have, like, a schooling system, like, on the island before he came in there. But, like, the islanders are, you know, initially receptive to hosting and working with the soldiers, but the soldiers don't really understand their customs, so they kind of impeach and tread upon them. Like, they start chopping down a forest for the last provision, and, you know, there's, you know, huge, like, kind of spiritual significance to that forest. So they can't, like, just chop down trees there without doing a purification ritual. And more importantly, like, you also can't chop down the trees because the river will dry up if the trees went on. So, like, it would be hugely damaging to the agriculture of the island if they did that. Then they try and blowing up the fish in the ocean with bombs, which they say, you can't fish like that. That is a fishing nursery. The whole island has agreed not to fish there. Like, you know, it's fine to do moderate fishing, but if you blow up the fo- ocean, you'll kill the fish's eggs, and, you know, that'll just destroy the fish population there, which will make it harder to fish in the future. And to Captain Mori's credit, he is receptive to the concerns of the islanders when Umisato brings them up. And he says, you know, they will stop cutting down trees and blowing up the fish with grenades. But he does need the islanders to cooperate and join the war effort and 
you know, become soldiers himself. Like, Gumisato tries to plead with him and say, hey, you know, this is a small island. I served in the war. I was on the Chinese front and I saw the horrors of war. I don't want to bring civilians into this. This is a small island. If you have your soldiers stationed here, it'll make them a target. And because it's a small island, there's like nowhere for them to hide. There will be serious casualties. You know, if you really want to protect the people, you know, they're more likely to survive, honestly, if you're not here. And Mori at first, like, you know, hears him out, but he's like, well, I'll just pretend I didn't hear this, basically. And he says, we're going to go forward with, like, training your islanders and civilians. You know, we may be celebrating your 40, but then you'll bolster our numbers. But then he sees the next day that, you know, the islanders have not been trained in formal combat, and they're not really equipped to do that. They've just been, you know, doing kind of special island festival rituals. So he can't really use them for combat. And things just end up continuing as, like, Maury's doing a survey, and basically, you know, he ends up having a conversation with Umisato again, where Umisato does ultimately let on that, you know, he has been shaken by his wartime experience. Like, at first, he's, like, saying, no, I'm not anti-war, but, you know, I, I served in the war, I saw the the horrors of what happened to, like, uh, civilians when I did my tour in China. You know, I learned when I became a police officer what kind of troubles people were having. So, you know, I wanted to help people. Uh, so I got my teaching license and I asked to be stationed, uh, you know, sent somewhere, you know, into the backwaters to, like, help people, you know, who are kind of, like, in peaceful community, kind of uh, educate them and help them out. And eventually he does kind of ultimately confess to, like, thinking that the war is, like, meaningless. And, you know, he kind of lets that slip. And around that same time, the main island is attacked by the enemy soldiers and their bond. And so after that, after seeing that, you know, Mori ultimately is contemplating what Umisada has told him and basically decides that he will have his soldiers pull out and rethink his battle strategy in order to prioritize of the citizens. And the story ends on the note of like, you know, the island is left in peace with the soldiers having left. And it's, there's like an epilogue script that say like, Mori was later deployed on the main island of Okinawa and died in battle. And there were many civilian deaths, but the people of Meishima, like this island, ended up being spared from the fighting and the bloodshed. So it's a very kind of poignant, you know, anti-war story, story looking at like civilians trying their best to cooperate with military, but also really trying to not participate in a war they know is just only going to lead to their doom if they get involved. And so it's that kind of push and pull conflict of like trying to be cooperative, but also trying to not get themselves involved. And also it shows kind of the detachment that the soldiers have for from the islanders in terms of their understanding, their appreciation, respect for the natural world and the environment they live on. Because the people of Mashima, you know, they're in tune, they're attuned to kind of the ecology of their island. And they know like, okay, we can't cut down this many trees without like going through like a certain ritual and without paying attention to like, you know, if we cut down a lot of trees, like that'll affect the flow of the river, that'll affect our agriculture. We can't overfish that'll affect the fishing population. We have to, like, live in balance and in peace and attunement with, like, our environment. Meanwhile, the soldiers come in and they immediately start, like, well, we're just going to use up all these resources. At least we're going to prioritize using up all these resources. And not think of, like, you know, what is going to be the consequence to the people as a result of that. And this is kind of a story that probably happened so many times 
in the actual war of like, you know, through military effort, the local environments of these communities, these small communities and cultures were ravaged and that deeply affected their ability to thrive in the post-war. And thankfully, this island was spared from that just because this captain ended up being receptive to the concerns of the people and ultimately did it decide to prioritize, you know, their safety and, like, their way of life rather than get them embroiled in the war effort that would have, like, you know, destroyed their community if not cost them their lives. And, yeah, I mean, there's this big point of, like, all the young men of the village have already left to fight on the main island. There's this huge woolly when the island is attacked that, you know, they uh, may have all perished there. So, like, there's also a whole, like, worry of, like, generationally, you know, with all the young men in the village gone, like, the culture of the island already is going to suffer from that alone but yeah i mean again it's just an interesting kind of look at like civilians trying to cope through the wartime effort and then trying to avoid getting involved and it's interesting to have the perspective of someone who participated in the military and came out of it realizing that this is not the way i want to live uh, this is a way that just leads to the point a pointless meaningless loss of life and I have tried to make an effort in my life afterwards to find meeting in helping people. And I moved into this culture in which the people, they understand and appreciate the meaning of their natural world and in like the customs and rituals they do. And I take pride in that in being part of this community and helping this community. And it's interesting to have him as this liaison between these two worlds of the military and then the local culture of Maishima as being someone who is able to go between and understand both perspectives but ultimately advocate for the civilian perspective in a way that is convincing up to the military captain. So yeah, it's a very, very thoughtful anti-war story. And yeah, I really appreciate this perspective. And you know, Higa, I'm very curious to see like these future collections because like this seems to be the focus of these collections of stories. Like how the people of Okinawa kind of dealt with the war effort then dealt with the consequences of World War II, both like being involved in the war and then the post-war like occupation. And uh, as someone who like is so deeply involved in community from like reading up on like what, you know, Chris wrote about him and stuff like I, yeah, it's, it's super fascinating to me. And so this chapter will be really enthralled and intrigued to, to read the remaining chapters in this collection. Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting sort of like, uh, one-off story that I, I'm sure will probably like lead it to another story. I'm not entirely sure, but it, it does make me want to read more. Again, I when, when I first heard the news about manga explaining, you know, getting into their own manga, I was like really super excited because we mentioned earlier we are both fans. Uh, we love listening to manga explaining. Uh, I definitely really enjoy their show. Uh, anytime I get the chance to listen to it, it's always a great time listening. Uh, and I'm just really happy that like they're getting into actually publishing manga. Like this is a really cool thing that like I don't think has really ever been done before. So like this is like some real new territory that like I'm really looking forward to seeing like what comes out of it and. You know, I think this is just a real, th this is a real taste of like, hopefully the kind of stuff that like, uh, they're probably going to be looking to, you know, to publish and localize and everything. And uh, if this is what we can expect, I'm definitely going to, you know, subscribe to Substack when I get the chance here. Because uh, again, you can read this first chapter for free, uh, with a free subscription, I should, I should say. Um, and, you know, if you're interested in reading more after this, I think you should, because that's honestly what I'm going to do. Um, you know, I don't know if I have really, like, much more else to add other than, you know, I really thought the story for this was interesting. Clearly a critique of, like, of war and everything that comes with it, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, and like you said, very poignant. 
I really love the art for this. I would put, I mean, I guess, you know, I've never read any of uh, Susan Mahiga's works before this, but so far I would put his art in the category of it looks really simple and looks really easy to draw. But I think, you know, uh, if you really think about it, like this probably took a lot of time to draw. Like I think, you know, the, like the characters look simpler, you know, compared to like, you know, the backgrounds and, you know, everything that like actually surrounds the characters. Like, again, I it's like such a clean looking comic, too. It was really, really easy to read. Again, while the story itself was like still very like dense and poignant, I think like I just I just really enjoyed reading this and I really want to read more. Yeah, I think the illusion of like the characters being simple design just has to do with like their facial features or they don't do have much in their, you know, they have smaller eyes, you know, not the usual like super detailed anime manga style eyes we have in a lot of modern mainstream merch. So like they, they seem like simpler designs, but you know, they... Obviously, like, Hika is an incredibly talented artist in terms of depicting the landscapes of Okinawan and this island because there's so much detail in the environment of the island, like in the forests and the fields and the sea. So, like, it is incredibly well-drawn and detailed comic. And the characters themselves, you know, they also have, despite being, like, kind of more muted in their expressiveness, there's still a lot of emotion and weight carried in their expressions and, like, just the, the subtle stoicness of how they often communicate like they they are not the most emotive of faces oftentimes but even so there is still a lot that is communicated kind of contextually that gives a layer of like added meaning and depth to like different interactions between the characters different conversations particularly between any conversation between mori and umisato like, they have oftentimes, like, kind of more stoic, subdued paces, but you can really pay attention and consider and contemplate the interiority of the characters. Mm-hmm. There are also moments here and there, you know, like you said, between Ubisato and, and Mori, uh, specifically around the—I I think it's around their first sort of, like, conversation, confrontation, whatever you want to call it, you know, where he—where Ubisato does bring up, like, you know, I was on the Chinese war front, and I really saw some things, and, you know, I, I really like that moment where, like, uh, where Mori just kind of, like, there, there's a real kind of, like, sort of awkward silence between them as he's kind of, like, taking that in, and I don't know, I thought that really said a lot about, like, the weight of that particular conversation in general. Mm-hmm. And as he's going through that conversation, like, yeah, he does become more emotive, and you do see some kind of the anxiety and like the horror and the anger seeping through his face that ultimately builds when he does ultimately let stuff that he does think the war effort is meaningless. And I do like his kind of look of shock and realization of like when he realized what he just said is like, oh, oh, I actually let it slip how I really feel. Oof. Something that I was trying to keep mum this entire time, you know, in order to not like, you know, cause conflict. But, you know, it's a really great sequence. And I like that, you know, Umisato... I mean, Mori, rather, he doesn't, like, really ever lose his temper or get upset at Umisato for, like, kind of pushing back against him. He is kind of receptive, and he just hears him out, even though he does contemplate, like, what he's saying. He does, he, you know, he's a loyal soldier, through and through. He believes in the cause, but he also is respectful of Umisato's spirit and also perspective of the Islander's way of life. And not impeding upon it ultimately. So he does ultimately. I do like really the final shot of him, like either watching in the evening the bombing on the main island. 
the shading as he turns away from Musato when he's like saying like, you know, we are going to change our strategy and then asks him like, you know, what he would have done if the platoon had deployed there. And then Umisato confesses that, yeah, he would have taken action apart from the military. And, you know, we don't even see his expression, but he like just is saying, I see, I suppose it's only right. We just see it from the back, the shading, and he looks kind of downward. And it's like he's he's really thinking and contemplating, maybe even second guessing himself at that moment. But he's ultimately committed, as you know, the postscript that lets us know that he did, you know, end up fighting on the main island. He did end up dying in in the battle because he's, you know, he did, I guess, ultimately believe in it. But you know, maybe in this moment he he also was thinking maybe maybe there is another way to live. Maybe there is another path out there, like Umisato was found. And it's very interesting. It's it's very nuanced and compelling. I like that a lot. But no, yeah, this was this was just really good. I I really can't wait to see like what else the uh, manga explaining team brings out to us. Absolutely, like I really appreciate them sending a spotlight on you know again more Indian underground manga manga from creators that don't get published often here. Or I mean, in the case of Taya Masamoto, like he's a published author, but showing work that otherwise wouldn't get published uh, officially, like you know, kind of those prototype works, and also yeah, like this collection of really interesting you know wartime commentary stories from an author talking about like how that affected his particular community like i think that's like so interesting and like i'm curious to see like the different takes and iterations you know Higa has on that commentary on how like the war affected his home country of okinawa his own community of okinawa in the rest of these stories but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely leave a link in the show notes for like where you can read this in particular and like, you know, where to like subscribe and everything. Because, you know, if you're interested at all in this, I, I really think it's th- like this. This is worth checking out. Like I said, you know, first chapter, this is free if you want like a preview. But honestly, I, I think I think this is really worth subscribing to. Yeah. And potentially, you know, if we both become subscribers, like we will probably or I mean, I'm pretty open to like covering other new works published by mxs on the show like even if they're not like amiable like free like definitely i think these are stories worth spotlighting covering oh yeah for sure and now we are going to talk about our mangamo series that we are going to spotlight these are recent additions to the app that we got some pre-release access once again courtesy of mangamo and thanks to the folks there first and thought of these titles our way to check out so we managed to read quite a few chapters of each of these series ahead of when they come out. And at this point, most of these series are available on the app by the time you're listening. The only one that likely isn't is Ghost Story Loop that comes out on February 16th, which is a little bit after we're recording this and a little bit before... Rather, it's a little bit uh, after when we're releasing this, at least our plan to release this. So, but, you know, it'll still be around the same ballpark. And for the other titles, you know, we have read beyond what is already available on the app. So just to put it out there, we have read about eight chapters of robustness. We have read about 13 chapters of Dungeon Battle Royale. We have read about five chapters of Ultra Femme Shishiharakan and Ghost Story Loop. So there are going to be spoilers for these series. You know, we're going to talk about them generally at the start, but do be warned, you know, we are going to work in like general long-term story spoilers. So if you're not like caught up to those chapters, you know, just be warned. 
at the time of recording, you know, Robustness has about four chapters out, and then Shishihara-kun has just one chapter out, and Dungeon Battle Royale has about three chapters out. So I would say spoilers probably won't be too big a deal for most of the series. Well, it'll be won't be a big deal for two of the series. I don't think it'll be a big deal for Bustness or Ultra Fam. For Ghost Story Loop, you know, that <laughs> is an outgap, so there's gonna be a big, like, uh, twist in the premise we'll have to talk about. And then Dungeon Battle Royale, there's basically, like, two volumes worth. It's At least I read two volumes worth of that series. 13 chapters, 30 pages apiece, so, you know, th- there's a lot to talk about there, especially since it's kind of a dense series, so uh, yeah, uh, just be warned, there will be some, like, spoiler talk of, like, you know, things that have happened in later chapters that might not be on the app yet. Why don't we do this real quick? Uh, I'll just get this out of the way for all these series in case anyone just wants to know how we generally like them. I liked Robustness a lot. Uh, Dungeon Battle Royale, I really couldn't get into personally. Um, Shishi Harakun, I really liked. Uh, Ghost Story Loop might be my favorite one out of the four of them. I think it has the strongest hook, which again, uh, big spoilers for that one in particular, because we are going to talk about that later. So just kind of watch out. And we'll also have time codes in the description, you know, for if you want to like skip around to whatever series you want to hear us talk about. But I just wanted to get that out there, how I felt about all of these, generally speaking, in case anybody was curious. Yeah, sure. Okay, to even extrapolate upon that, I will say that Robustness succeeds in being a very compelling kind of sports slash kind of character arc narrative of like, you know, this person who is put in a like, it's also an interesting kind of period piece thing focused on the game. So it's like, you know, it's a very compelling story if you're like, you're interested in like interesting martial arts action and choreography. It has, it really succeeds in that. And it has a compelling hook of like, you know, the rise to the top kind of character arc, you know, archetypal beat so if you like stories of like characters going through adversity to achieve a goal in kind of like a competitive sports setting i think this is a very compelling narrative that's full of a lot of adversity and hardship and tragedy to fuel that so i think it will be very appealing to folks who again like other types of like martial arts combat as well as like kind of rise to the top sports narrative as well as like kind of revenge type series like it's a like an interesting mix of like maybe Winland Saga meets Hajime Lupo or something like that yeah yeah I can see that then with Dungeon Battle Royale let's go next like Dungeon Battle Royale I will agree that is probably like the series that took the longest to grow on me I think I read more of it much more of a good colton ultimately i did read all the chapters uh but i and i will say that by the end of reading it i did get more into it and more intrigued to just see where it's going because i think conceptually dungeon battle royale is a very interesting premise i don't know if the social commentary that it's rooted in is up to snuff what what it commenting on you know jad Ann's like uh aging population declining birth late uh i think some of the the environmental concerns that motivate the premise are interesting in general the ultimate idea of like the the malaise uh of humanity needing to be kind of addressed and be motivated you know i think there's potential there but moreover like its biggest weakness is the protagonist who is not the most compelling we'll get more into that but i will say that the overall world building and the overall mechanics of like its battle system and the battle culture that it's trying to create in the premise i think that is very interesting so it is a grower i think and potentially with the introduction of new characters to the mix and new conflicts that could bring i think the series could grow into something you know quite quite fun to follow and quite interesting to see like how it'll play out 
Now, Ultra Film Shiji Harukan, that was the first title I read because it, you know, immediately appeared to me because, you know, it was, you know, had a very queer vibes of like, oh, this is very effeminate presenting male character who's very cute to the envy of even like his female best friend. And there's even more behind that of like kind of the gap between all his presentation and then his past and actual personality. So that's fun and although Lovely, it is like just a, a nice lighthearted comedy between like these two characters, you know, it's like cool friendship between like these two characters are all, you know, super powerful or like super skilled in their own ways. And they're all trying to kind of make make a new start in their lives. And it's just an interesting relationship between them as they kind of are trying looking out for each other. And there's some fun comedy to be had there. And a ghost story loop, we won't like go in deep into like the big twist in the premise, but it is like. It's so interesting, and I'm so glad that they gave us five chapters of the series to read because, oh yeah, you know, it takes five chapters. It feels like this five these five chapters should have been like just all one chapter because like it really sets out the entire premise of the story after the fifth chapter. I mean, I feel like by the title, maybe you can understand or get an implication of like what the twist is. But I will say that you know what starts out is like you think you know it's a traditional exorcist series ultimately goes in a different direction has another interesting wrinkle to it and i think that ultimately i think the core protagonist of the series is interesting i think the horror of the villains and their designs like the the ghost creatures designs are pretty good and creepy so it has good like you know action vibes it's pretty solid in terms of like the you know supernatural exorcism type series battle manga vibe but then the extra flourish of the twist on top of that makes it even more intriguing so it makes Mm -hmm. gives it a mystery element that you want to see like kind of where it's gonna go and what the deal is like what is going on behind the scenes so overall i I think they're a very interesting collection of series i think the most like kind of immediately compelling is robustness i think that's like kind of the easiest that could be recommended uh but i do think definitely pay attention to ghost story loop and i think that we'll have some things to recommend with shishihara and uh dungeon metal once we get further into discussion proper but yeah that those are the non-spoiler like fast pitch recommendations for those series and now i think we'll go into deeper discussions of the series themselves starting with robustness which was the first to be published and basically to explain the premise as mentioned before this is kind of like kind of a period piece it's set in 8th century bc ancient greece it follows two brothers grenos and Heros, who train in the plays of pancration and that's like a kind of an ancient grecian martial art that combines boxing and wrestling and so you know they've been trained in an ezra one by their father who is actually like an ex-Olympian. Like, he was someone who participated in the Olympics when he was younger, but when he was at the Olympics, like, his previous three sons from their mother ended up getting killed in war. And so he has always, like, kind of felt a responsibility that he's never forgiven himself for that because he was away, you know, his sons lost their lives. And he gave up Pangatron. He gave up participating in Olympics and sports. And he became a soldier. He became the general of his hometown of Lemos. And, yeah, so, you know, Granos and Heros, like, they train. Heros, you know, is the older buddy. He's very strong. And he, like, knows his father's story and he admires him. And he wants to, like, kind of become, like, Hercules by winning the Olympic Games, creating a world without war. Can inspire, like, with, uh, you know, his father's story. And Granos, you know, our main protagonist, he's the younger brother. You know, he always 
is getting beat by his older brother and he really wants to live up to him and live up to his strength to like beat him and so he also has like a good heart he stands up to someone who's being bullied and even when he's getting beaten the crap out of like he doesn't back down like he has guts in the face of adversity which is something that is going to be put through a lot because he ends up getting put through the ringer because Lamos ends up being invaded by Spartans Spartans like invade mainly to you know fight Asheros and like take his head basically and they end up killing Gretos and Heroes' mother and like she gets like a spear through her chest and like Asheros is like nearly successful at driving them off but unfortunately like Grenos and Heroes they made the terrible mistake of going back to their home rather than retreating like their father had instructed in the case of invasion and like Grenos totally blows her cover by like running to his mother and that gives the Spartans the opportunity to like surround them and hold them hostage and basically forces Acheros to sacrifice himself to spare them. And so he gets decapitated by Stratos, the enemy Spartan general. And Heroes immediately realizes what's going to happen. Like he realizes, okay, our parents are dead. We're orphans. We're going to be sold as slaves. And Heroes, you know... He tells Grenos to, like, be strong and survive, and he goes off to, like, attack Spartratos himself. Doesn't work. He ends up, like, killing one of the soldiers, though, but, like, he fails to, like, strike at Stratos. But Stratos is, like, very impressed with his moxie. And, you know, he has a lot of respect for Atreus. He has a lot of respect for Heroes. So he's like, okay, I'm going to take Heroes with me. He'll be, like, Probably one of my warriors, slaves or whatever. But Granos, you know, Granos, like, he pisses his pants. Like, when he's confronted by Stratos, he's... Stratos looks down on him, and he's like, ah, oh, just sell this guy off the pirates. And that's what happens. And the main thing that's motivating Grenos, just to mention, is like, you know, Grenos and Heroes make a promise, like, hey, you know, we're gonna probably be separated through, you know, slavery and through whatever life takes us, but let's make a promise right here now. We're gonna meet each other again. We're gonna survive and meet each other again at the Olympic Games. So that's Grenos' motivation. His goal is to meet back with up his brother and participate in the Olympic Games. But yeah, Grenos is sold to pirates, and eventually... You know, originally he's just going to be used like as kind of like, you know, a rower slave. But like he ends up getting to a fight with, you know, a really drunk guy who's a fairly good fighter. And he ends up beating him, which impresses a lot of people. That attracts the attention of Alkius, who's a fellow pirate slave who's like one of the warrior slaves. And he ends up like kind of beating Granos, like he's showing him like... Oh, there's like a, there's a level of skill that you know, I can't match here. But it also the fighting attracts the interest of the pirate captain, Yorgos, who Yorgos uh, tries to attack. It doesn't really take, but Yorgos is impressed with the kids, got all the same. So he decides to make him one of his warrior slaves, puts him under the care of Alkius and the others. And he basically starts to learn like what the rules are here. Like basically the way out of his situation is to essentially earn enough to buy his own freedom. Through, and mainly the way he'll do that is basically through informal slave warrior fighting that happens. Like whenever the pirates dock into different towns, like they get bet on. And so like if they bet on themselves, like they can use their winnings from their matches or they can attract the attention of a scout to buy them from the pirates. And that's like their main strategy of like in terms of buying their freedom. And so that's what he's trying to do. 
And that's kind of where the story is now. They've kind of docked in a local town and they're kind of getting embroiled with a conflict of like this guy who was like pestering this girl and there's some fighting going on. But yeah, that's basically where we are in the story right now. And yeah, like mentioned before, this again has a really immediately compelling hook of like these brothers are separated by their parents getting murdered. Um, They have this connection to this martial art that they both train in and they both admire and try to be better at and they have like this dream that unites them even when separated of you know working their way to reunite with each other as their only family and also to participate in this dream of theirs in going to the Olympics kind of living up to their own father's legacy as a you know renowned Olympic uh, Pankotron combatant very very compelling hook to the story and also just the action is good the actual martial arts the Pankotron are like super well choreographed the hits are very brutal looking and the art is just very strong all around on the actors and just on the character design side like the looks of all the characters are really cool like you know Yorgos and Mithias in particular the pirate captain vice captain they have super cool designs like it's really really well drawn a lot of visceral physicality to everything and it's got a very compelling tread that you want to see and follow like i think that this definitely is the most immediately appealing i think to most people i think it would be the most immediately appealing to most people just off the strength of the first chapter the other ones i think maybe might be growers but i think this one is like by the end of the first chapter you're like oh man i am into these characters i think i feel the connection between these brothers i really appreciate this action and then it just continues to kind of hook you from there as we get into like you know the whole stuff with their village being attacked and their parents being murdered and then be separated and all that mm-hmm. no this was uh i thought this one was pretty good uh i definitely want to keep reading more of this you know uh just from reading the first chapter i, I at first i thought like because you know we're, we were getting a lot of setup between you know the two brothers and everything and they clearly have like a relationship or whatever and uh at first i thought the older brother was gonna get killed i kind of thought that's where it was gonna go at first i I, w- I wasn't expecting like both parents to die but uh a lot of that stuff was really really good kind of reminded me a little bit of uh of nami's backstory in one piece where it's like if only they didn't come back to where the villains were then then their parents maybe would have survived or at least one of them yeah no that is a good comparison and for me like immediately what i thought of was again as mentioned before Winland saga with like the parent is killed by enemy pirates and basically the child is like kidnapped to work as basically their slave in order to like eventually get revenge on the people who killed his father. And yeah, like this kind of is what's happening with Kuros is that he's been taken under the wing of the man who murdered his father and he's going to like probably be forced to work under him eventually work his way up in the ranks of his crew and then eventually like maybe he'll try and beat him in combat and take his life that way and so it'll be interesting to see heroes this way. we haven't touched back in on him since he was taken away we've been focused on grenos but similarly grenos's situation it still has that vibe so like torfin working under Ascalad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine those like opening color pages at the beginning of the first chapter is Grenos and that's where he's going to like end up eventually is, you know, fighting in Olympus or whatever. 
I'm sure we're going to get to that point eventually. But um, man, no, yeah, this was this was just really good. This one was like the easiest one for me to read just to kind of go from chapter to chapter because I thought it was just pretty compelling like all the way through. Yeah, the layouts and also the art of it is just very easy to read and it flows well. So, you know, this is the one that you have that feels the most effortlessly to read because the, it, yeah. it just... The paneling and the action beats really work seamlessly with each other. So in terms of like that, it is definitely like the most appealing of the titles, I feel, in terms of just artistic strength and uh, comics craft paneling strength. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, I haven't read a lot of Vinland Saga, but like I couldn't help but like think the same thing like while I was reading this. Like if, if you want something similar to that, I think this is the next best thing. Uh, if you're if you're looking for more sort of stories like that, uh, with, with sort of the same like uh, I guess aspects, ingredients, whatever you want to call it, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I have like a whole lot to say about it. I I just thought it was really good, and I I really want to keep reading more. Yeah, absolutely. The next title we'll talk about, the one that came out next, was Dungeon Battle Royale. There's a lot to this premise. I will say sure in broad strokes, though, like the ethos behind the series is that it imagines a scenario and answers the question of why the Demon Lord and Rudy game, well, most blatantly in this case, Dragon Quest, didn't just defeat the hero from the start of the game. Like if you ever wondered, like, you know, the, the Demon Lord is clearly the most strongest hero in the game. Why doesn't he just defeat the heroes from the start rather than let the hero work his way through the, his ranks till they get strong enough to challenge him? And this series is basically about, you know, the villain in that scenario, the Demon Lord in that scenario, strategizing a way to make his territory appealing for other people, for heroes to, with entry level powers to like go into his territory and work his way up. Because in doing that, he himself benefits by getting stronger. Uh, Uh, Like, if he lures people in and he can take their lives, like, he can grow and level up his skills. So that kind of answers that question of, like, oh, there's an actual push and pull here. You know, by making his, like, entry territory appealing for people to enter and, like, get wins in, he can also get wins himself and, like, he can go stronger. So it's, like, a mutually kind of competitive relationship that ultimately he's trying to edge out a win in ultimately. But to go like just deeper into like the overall premise, basically this series imagines kind of like a a god-ish character who we don't like fully know where she comes from, like who she really is, like is she a d-god or she's just a god. But basically she's like some supernatural like godly being who is like frustrated by humanity's kind of apathy towards like problems in the world that is kind of leading to them being on the brink of collapse and extinction in like 20 years she thinks because of factors like declining birth rate, aging population their lack of motivation to grow and change and fix problems like pollution. And she's like frustrated. It's like, you know, if you are worried about the declining birth rate, like have more babies. And if you are worried about pollution, like go out and figure out a solution. Like she's just frustrated. Like no one's coming up with solution problems. And so her idea in order to fix the situation is by shaking things up and forcing humanity to like compete. And she is observed like the humanity grows the most when they're in conflict when they are in war. So basically she is like 
trying to embroil in the entirety of humanity in world by like kind of creating two groups and pitting them against each other. And those groups are demon lords who are going to be the instigators of change and conflict by opposing the rest of humanity. They're only like 0.02% of the global population, but they are going to be like kind of the enemies that, you know, the rest of humanity are going to fight against. And basically, uh, also to mention like, she had sent this directive on everyone's phones that they are going to test people for the potential for salvation. And those who don't take the test would be deemed neutral and subject to penalties. And then neutral people basically, as it turns out, end up just being people who have no power in the scenario. They're not demon lords. They're not heroes. Uh, so they're not in the law or chaos camps as, or, you know, the actual categories that are designated, you know, which is like, you know, big uh, d terminology or whatever there but yeah like the law people are the heroes and chaos people are demon lords and whatnot so people who decide to take the aptitudes do it because like they they're a bunch of mysterious circumstances like people are are who try to investigate the test suddenly die so the government just media just start urging everyone to take the test and the test uses health apps on people's smartphones to monitor whether they are answering truthfully and yeah basically in the process of testing people she has designated like select people as chaos people and select people as law people and so yeah chaos people are demon lords law people are heroes and chaos people generally like our protagonists are people who are kind of like uh anti-social they don't super fit into society and they kind of have a selfish like self-absorbed side to them. So our protagonist, for example, is Shiyan Kurosaki. Like he's a first-year university student at the start of the story. And yeah, he just really does not care about anything. And when he was like answering the the questions in the survey for the World Survey Project, like there was a question of like, you know, if you were put in this situation, like who would you prioritize saying? And he was answers like himself. You know, he really does not have a lot of connections with other people. No real friendships, no one he really cares about that much, you know, just completely just in his own world. And so he's rewarded, quote unquote, by becoming a chaos person, a demon lord. And he basically like, all the chaos people eventually, like, are bestowed, like, their own territories of, like, a certain radius. And that pushes out everyone who used to live in that territory, like, outside. And that's basically kind of the starting source of the conflict, is that by pushing out everyone who used to live in a certain area and, like, just gifting it to the demon lords, the, the chaos people... Like, they basically created this huge refugee housing crisis. Like, they've forced people, like, especially in densely populated areas, to, like, kind of congregate even further. And that has just caused huge, huge problems worldwide. And especially because, like, yeah, like, you know, 0.02% of the population, that's, like, one out of every thousand-ish people. So, like, there, there are a huge number of people that have been displaced from their homes. But the Chaos people are, like, given, like, a month to kind of prepare and build up their strength in their own territories. Like, they're given a month heads up, like, letting them know, like, the rules of the Salvation Project before the Law people. And so they, like Xion, use that time to kind of learn their skill set, learn, like, what they can create, learn, like, the rules of, like, okay, every, all, the, all the Chaos people have, like, cores that represent present their lives like if the cores are destroyed like they'll die basically their cores basically you know if they exchange hands with someone else like that person gets their territory whatnot so they have to protect their cores and they have all these other powers there's a bunch of other things in their app that they can use to kind of learn things they can ask a question of the host uh to you know learn things that they have confused on the points that they can put into their stats in order to hone skills in certain areas and all that so that's what Xion basically does for 
his month and he realizes, you know, he accidentally, because the phone sensitivity is bad and there's no cancel button, he puts all his BP points into forging. And so, you know, he ends up mostly specializing in creating other monsters that can like serve to protect his territory. And at the start, he can create like bats and slimes and goblins, kobolds and rats. And eventually he can create like elves and orcs and like a and ghouls. So he, as his power grows, he ends up being able to like grow and like what other creatures he can create. And also as his power grows, like the amount of intelligence his creatures, his vassals can have also improves. Like he can start to bestow upon them like some intelligence and the ability to talk, communicate with them. So that also ends up helping him out. But yeah, essentially, Xion in his mind kind of figures out that, you know, he has been gifted like this air territory in Kanazawa. But Kanazawa as a city was super densely populated. So there are probably 60 other demon lords in the area. And so he's not just in competition and in conflict with the law people, but he's also in competition with other demon lords. Like eventually other demon lords are supposed to start to fight each other in an effort to take over each other's territories. So he realizes that he needs to make his himself more of a target for the law people so he can lure law people in so he can fight them and gain experience and gain power in that ability and not let other demon lords in his surrounding area grow stronger than him so he can like maximize his own protection and safety at this point he's also become more of a i mean it says he becomes he like has some angst about like you know becoming like more detached emotionally like saying he's lost every emotionalist like all the chaos people have lost their memories of the people they knew in their previous lives as in the law people have lost their memories of the chaos people so there's some angst that she has about like realizing he can't remember his family and he can't really feel super deep emotions other than like a self-preservation instinct and a fear of that but you know we'll go into that later but I don't think that really uh, is super compelling but ultimately the bulk of the story does show like Xion succeed in like creating a appealing dungeon that is able to like lure people in and he like scatters the dungeon with treasure that gives rewards to the law people who go there so he does help some law people who go into his area get stronger and his plan is to like you know have like weak entry levels for those law people to like see to make the territory like gain some notoriety and appeal and he manipulates social media to like kind of post rumors about his own territory to draw people in but you you know, he also eventually his end game is to like draw people further into his own territory in his dungeon so that he will send like higher level monsters after them and, you know, start taking their lives and then that'll give him experience and level up. And ultimately he manages that balance well enough that he gets a consistent amount of people coming in and out that he gains the experience to upgrade his own class. So he becomes vampire class. And so he gets all the advantages, advantages you'd expect of vampire. Like he can't be exposed to light for 30 days after leveling up and he gets super weak if he does get with light but in the process of becoming a vampire he can also bestow abilities to his underlings and he also can gain their abilities by basically like drinking their blood and offering them a cup of his blood to drink so there becomes more contractual things there and that is basically kind of the focus of the story it's the focus is show Xion just you know, trying to grow in power as a demon lord to the point of like taking over other territories, basically to protect himself and ultimately be the last one standing in this conflict between the chaos and law people. And the overall like end goal of this conflict is just to encourage humanity to grow and evolve through the conflict between these two groups. And there are other characters that, you know, 
end up coming into the story. So kind of the main character we follow on the law side is Rina. She was a kendo prodigy. She has a best friend, Sayori, who's like more fighting carefree. They all end up becoming law people and they end up becoming like people who are part of the same party and same group. They're like kind of the first people who end up going into Xion's dungeon, which, you know, initially has success for the group, but they make the mistake of going further in. So members of their group die. But in the process of like doing that, Rina ends up getting the treasure item that Xion had set up for the first group that went into his territory, which was the Blacksteel Sword, which he kind of mistakenly gave people like a, you know, higher level like kind of item than he realized he should have. But Rina ends up getting that sword. And so she and her group end up becoming more successful than they're on out. And so we touch in on them time to time. And then later on into the chapters that we were given to read, Xion does meet another demon lord who is set up in earlier chapters called Canon. And Canon, you know, is kind of more of a lonely antisocial bookworm girl. Uh, and she didn't really, you know, think to strategize and strengthen herself uh, like Xion did. She... In getting, like, her powers and her vassals. Like, she just became friends with her vassals. Because, you know, she was kind of a lonely person and just spent time in her territory, like, peacefully with them. Until, like, law humans attacked her and started slaughtering her vassals. But because, you know, she invested all of her points and skills into, like, learning wisdom. She, like, maxed out her wisdom stat. So, like, she basically knows the entire rules of the game. She, like, basically read the entire manual of the game. So she kind of comes up with this strategy to protect herself by, like, sending one of her vassals, Gopta, a goblin vassal, who can talk and has, like, more, like, fully realized emotions than Xion's own vassals. Like, she sends Gopta to his territory to offer him her core, which, you know, will bestow upon Xion her territory... And also will entrust her own life to Xion. So her life will be protected if, you know, it's under the care of Xion. And Xion accepts and then Kanon basically becomes Xion's vassal too. And she's like basically serving as his advisor tactician. So that's kind of where we're at in the story right now. And uh, as I mentioned before, there's just a lot that goes into the premise of the story that I do find interesting. I do find like the mechanics of the World Solation Project and like what it's trying to do and how it's trying to make conflict. And then also like how the demon lords have to strategize to have this like push and pull of like they need to draw little people in to get stronger but they also need to make a balance of like having a way for the lot of people to level up so they can find it appealing to go to the territory but also they need to be able to lure them further in kind of like as a a sweet trap to like just also like prey upon them and also gain experience and level up that way so it's, it's an interesting again kind of dynamic between the two groups that they have kind of like a sort of mutually parasitic beneficial relationship to them but yeah like that's also that's the greatest strength is like the interesting concept in the world building of but that's also its greatest one of its greater weaknesses i guess is that especially the early chapters really does lord up it lays upon a lot of those rules it really just kind of is a lot of chapters are like Xi'an just like contemplating the rules of the game and trying to figure things out. And there's not a whole lot of like characters, not a lot of like emotion driving what he's doing other than like kind of just his rational like logic 
and problem solving. Because I think that that's probably the bigger weakness of the series is that Shion as the character is not particularly interesting and he's not particularly compelling because, you know, he's established as, again, someone who really doesn't care about anybody but himself. So when we have this moment that is brought up of like, oh, a lot of people uh, forget about the chaos people, all the chaos people forget about the lot of people and he realizes, oh, I can't remember my own family and oh, I want to be coming detached by my own emotions. Well, he didn't really show that many emotions to begin with. We didn't really establish that there was anyone he cared about before to begin with. And so it's just kind of a strange thing. It's like we don't really have much to latch on to with Xion as a character. He is really just like on a surrogate almost to just watch, you know, here's an example of how someone put in this situation might go about optimizing and maximizing their chances of survival, which, you know, again, this world building is interesting, but like the actual character is just not that interesting to follow and not interested that really compelling to get that invested in. As the series goes on, we do get to see like Shion kind of yearn for companionship. So, you know, there is this dark elf of his that is like kind of emphasized early on in the series as like being a really good fighter. And eventually he's able to bestow upon her, you know, speaking ability as well as speaking ability to some other vassals. But like his main dark elf, like Chloe, seems to first be his like first real companion. But then, you know, Canon, of course, kind of gets introduced. And then they both kind of come from a similar place of being kind of antisocial and awkward at communicating with people. So they kind of form up like a generally interesting dynamic with each other. So at that point, you know, in interaction with other characters, Xion starts to become a little more interesting. But just at the start, when he's just like a vehicle to like learn more about the game the world, he is not terribly compelling. It really is like when can canon is like the first character who's like the most genuinely compelling character in terms of like someone who like you can really feel for her situation and backstory of like you know she just was a lonely person she was given this opportunity to like create friends and her vassals and she like really used that time and she was just genuinely happy like just living peacefully with them and that was just taken away when she was unprepared to deal with you know law humans like just basically killing her friends so she's just put in this like really tough situation she basically has to just find a way to protect her own life and the one remaining vassal she has in Gopta. So that is part is when it like finally had kind of some real pathos to it. But for the most part, it is just like just kind of from a detached standpoint, just watching someone like works through playing this game and trying to manipulate the situation to his advantage. Potentially, there's there's more interesting stuff to be had with Rena, who is like a main focal perspective from the law side. But also we haven't like touched in on her enough, I feel. I feel like eventually there's going to be something in which, like, you know, she'll continue to grow in strength as a, a law liberator hero. Or, and eventually that'll put her back into conflict with Xion. And, she, you know, she'll perhaps probably, you know, gonna hold on to her lingering regret of, like, you know, the people in her party dying on, like, their first raid of his... Uh, territory and whatnot. So I, I think once they get back to that, that could be also an interesting conflict. But yeah, it needs a little more, again, just pathos, a little more like emotional grounding. Uh, again, I did ultimately end up finding the overall 
premise of this interest and the overall idea of the the project and putting people into conflict and again just the way they have to strategize to like have like this mutual relationship up into a certain point in which like that dynamic can change and one person can make a move one group can make a move against the other like that stuff is interesting to follow but yeah it's hopefully like there's just more development that's put on to the characters that like makes them Shion in particular more compelling as the story goes forward because like this is a novel series like this manga adaptation you know is, is based on a novel series it's been going on for a while now and you know just looking it up just cursory that like there's going to be a lot more characters that are going to get introduced uh, so hopefully as more characters come into the story to complement and bounce off of Shion the the story will get more interesting from there or the story will get more compelling from there so overall i think if you're a fan of like kind of isekai well not really isekai if you're a fan of like fantasy stories or like stories that place fantasy elements into real world and also stories that are like focused more on like strategizing and also breaking apart the meta of how like fantasy tales work and particularly fantasy games work i think this is an author that clearly has spent a lot of time thinking about that it definitely reads that someone who's like invested all their time thinking about like fantasy games and novels and trying to figure out how to create a story that would kind of play upon the tropes and mechanics of that and i think for those people this will have a lot of appeal but for the immediate like hook of like oh this is an interesting character who i want to see succeed at this that's where the series falls the weakest to me and that's what sort of makes this pretty unquestionably the weakest of the lot of the four series we're going to discuss here from mangamo but yeah, I mean, I ended up talking, I don't know how my god long because about this series, because there's just so much to talk about just in the premise alone, just describing the premise and how it works. But I mean, I know you weren't like super enthusiastic. I think you read four chapters and you could probably agree with the, my perspective, like the character is the biggest weakness. I'll, I'll make my thoughts quick. I'm sorry I haven't spoken in a really long time, but I got to be honest. Yeah, this was my least favorite thing to read out of this group of series. I gave up after about five chapters because it really, 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 really just was not pulling me in. You know, at first I was interested in the premise because like, you know, the idea of like this random god coming down and like, you know, pitting all these people against each other to like cleanse humanity. Like I'm, I, I'm a sucker for like, I guess this is kind of sort of death gamey, not really. It is more of a fantasy kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the, the goal of the series, even though a lot of characters are dying, like the goal of the series ultimately is to reinvigorate humanity, to spur their evolution. And I mean, the idea of the project of salvation is like to save humanity through conflict. So that's another interesting trick is that it's not a nihilistic premise. It's not a premise. In li- the, it's not like, you know, we talked about Tokyo Death Game, which was from the previous round. And that's a series where it's like, oh, all these characters are going to die. And that's like the big cool appeal. Yeah of the story but this is not like the focus the focus is not on the fact that we want to watch characters die even though a lot of characters do die and you know Xion is responsible for a lot of characters which is another you know that's kind of the another weakness of like having this idea of oh he's like now sociopathic and doesn't care about killing people it's like well he didn't really care about people to begin with so like why is that a character is that not really a character conflict then and then we don't really explore the implications of like oh how does he feel about the fact that you know people are dying and you know we, we don't really delve that, that's another weakness but i think that the overall premise is interesting of like you know this is a ultimately a series that is supposed to focus on how humanity can grow through conflict and also grows through cooperation not just like the co because the whole idea with the law group is like they 
all come to five territories and teams and they all like create a network of information to let people know about different territories which are safe like what skill level is necessary obviously there's government regulation of all but there's also people who like just in general like it's focused on like parties that people are looking out for each other or trying to like grow through cooperation against like this enemy and meanwhile the demon lords like as we're seeing in the example of Xion and Canon are also ultimately going to end up collaborating if they want to avoid like ultimate conflict that like will you know cost one of their lives they also end up collaborating pooling their strengths and knowledge in order to help each other grow and survive so that that's another interesting aspect it's like more it's focused more on the collaboration of people in conflict with other people rather than like people just at odds at each other and trying to like put one over and punish each other to be the last one standing so i, I like that idea behind it too um, see here, here's the thing i would much rather play this than read it is the thing like i have such a hard time in general with like stuff that's too like explainy and video game-ish like th that kind of stuff really just like bounces off of me unfortunately no i totally agree like as i was reading the early turns i was like this is a game i would like to play actually this actually sounds like a fun yes, game yes. to be a demon lord and try and have to figure out like how to build my territory my map in such a way that i attract heroes into it and they can have like their early successes but i can also like gain experience in the process of that like it's an interesting concept that as the demon lord you actually want to attract like heroes into your territory and you actually want to help encourage their growth so it's like an interesting idea really like to have that again that mutually cooperative somewhat parasite but like it's an interesting thing that, that in conflict with each other these groups are helping each other grow so it's, it's, it's an interesting idea that i would like to see like put into action in an actual game but yeah like the whole idea of like just setting out all the rules in the early chapters yeah it is very expository and it is very detached from character which you know there wasn't a good establishment of shiana as a character in the first chapter so we don't not we don't, really no why are we following this person in particular what makes him special what makes him the character we want to follow and succeed, succeed at this like we we really don't get much to go on honestly he just seems like just kind of a jerkish antisocial guy who doesn't really care that much or think that much about other people and we don't get too much more about his other interests and other aspects of his personality he's just motivated he's just defined by kind of like rational logical problem solving and thinking through different scenarios and how to optimize them which you know that would be okay if there was one aspect but we gotta need we need like more of a emotional core and that's why i appreciated when canon got introduced in the story because she immediately had more of an interesting and compelling story to her and also in interacting with Xi'an, like she kind of touched upon an aspect of his character that could be explored to like flesh him out better like like uh, the aspect of him being kind of antisocial not being good at communicating with people like in having to interact with someone else like him like a, someone who is his peer and who can communicate and problems on work talks to like that is when like he started becoming more interesting and we started seeing like more wrinkles to his character but yeah it takes a long time to get that like canon doesn't really get into the story until like chapter 10 so you know it's just a lot of chapters of just like him building up like his territory and just going about it like logically and not ton of character motivating that other than oh i can do this now oh i can do this now oh that's interesting you know just very detached and like we 
have again he, as mentioned we have those moments we go in there like he wants to have someone to talk to and he starts experimenting with giving his vassal speaking ability like the L's and like controls and stuff and then there gets to be some humor finally in the process of doing that but then yeah it's, it takes a long time to get to that point and still even now I would say that this the series is more interesting because canon is got introduced and she's more interesting, but like I still am not that interested in Chiana's person. So yeah, it's it's a big weakness of the series. Like if only it's got such a great and interesting premise, a lot of potential for commentary on both like fantasy games and their set tropes and mechanics and potential social commentary or but like it just it really hinders itself by not having a protagonist compelling enough to carry it yeah you know that one bit from the simpsons where like flanders is talking to homer and like homer's brain leaves his body yeah that 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 was me reading this (laughs) uh um yeah i don't really have anything else to say I mean, unless you have any, like, really final straight thoughts before we, like, move on to the next title. I mean, all I'll say is that this did end up being the series that I ended up taking the most notes about. So uh, there's a lot there to the series, like as mentioned before. I mean, I don't know how long I even spent just talking about the mechanics of the story and the premise of the story. So there's a lot to it. It's just, like, there's not a lot compelling about it beyond just the concept of it. Yeah, I think that's its biggest sin, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. Is that there? There is a lot of thought clearly put into this. I just wish I was more interested in it. Is the thing, and I wish it was conveyed in a way that was more interesting. But that's just me. Well, now I'll go on to a series that thankfully won't take as long to describe, and that's Fulcher Femme Shishiharakun. And this series is done by Amaimi. And this is, again, pretty straightforward premise. You know, uh, there's a very cute high schooler kid. He's like, you know, very traditionally feminine in his image and interest. You know, he likes sewing and cooking. He's generally very friendly. His icebreaker to his classmates are like by baking cookies, which that end up winning a lot of people over. But behind his like friendly exterior lies kind of a secret past of him being a former middle school gang leader who had a reputation for taking down old rival gangs in his school. He was known as the King of Beasts, mini King of Beasts. And basically, we don't know what happened in his past to make him change like his demeanor, change how he presents himself, but he's trying to basically present a whole new image of himself in high school to be like kind of the super effeminate kind of friendly person rather than the the violent punk he used to be. Though that aspect of himself does pop out fairly frequently like he is not very good at like hiding his strength and he often does revert to his old angry violent self when he's insulted or when his friends are insulted particularly his best friend Yurika who also like Shishihara has some secrets in her middle school days that she's trying to kind of leave behind and create a new image for herself because when she was in middle school she was like a legendary athlete she participated in every club she took everything to national she won every first prize in every competition but she doesn't want to do clubs anymore she doesn't want to do sports anymore and you know she has been she's our friend for a long time and so together they're kind of looking out for each other as they're trying to like create a new identity and kind of explore different sides of themselves in high school and they both decide to join the cooling club with each other and that's basically the premise in the first couple chapters the only other notable character that gets introduced is like mocha who is someone who was saved by shota in middle school and ever since calls her um, her shisho or master and she is so enamored him and she's so shy to be around him she can't even look at him directly because she reused him so much even though she likes cute things and unlike Chota and 
Eureka, she is a bad cook with an undiscriminating palate. So she makes like terrible meals for herself, but she thinks they're tasty. And uh, yeah, that's that's basically all there is to the premise so far. But I think it's, you know, pretty charming. I think it's like a cool dynamic to have like our two lead characters. They both, as mentioned before, have passed. They were like a different people like in their middle school days. And now entering high school, they want to kind of create a new image from themselves. They want to kind of explore different things in their lives. They want to present themselves in a different way. But of course, their past and reputations catches up to them. But they're both kind of looking out for each other and protecting each other from like going down that old route and falling back into their old habits because you know Eureka looks out for Shota whenever it seems like he might start to get violent or reveal his own strength that kind of breaks the friendly feminine image that he's trying to put on and Shota looks out for Eureka whenever she's being pestered by all these sports teams that want to recruit her and so I like their friendship and I like the fact that they're both like trying to just figure out who they want to be. They want to be something different from they used, they used to be. I mean, I don't really know why just yet. Why Shota doesn't want to be a gang punk anymore. Why Yurika doesn't want to be like the star athlete anymore. But I do appreciate that this is a story about two characters who are like trying to help each other as they're figuring out like how they do want to be seen by the world and like how that they do want to kind of leave what they used to do behind and try different things and figure out other things they're interested in and other ways they want to kind of express themselves and let people other people see them as. Like I think they're so beholden by their reputations they just want to be seen as you know for as having more sides to them than just Yorika being the star of life and just Shota being like this super you know powerful gang boss who has this fearsome reputation and I think that's pretty sweet so it's a charming series so far no yeah th- this was really good again I didn't know too much about this going in so I really wasn't expecting the twist of Shishihara being like a former delinquent because that that first moment of like you know him protecting his friend from those two like bully guys and him just punching that big guy in the stomach that that, that was that really caught me off guard I totally wasn't expecting that so I, I really like that twist in particular and um yeah I you know like you said I'm, I'm really interested in reading more of this and seeing like just how they navigate their new like high school life in trying to like separate themselves from their past and whatnot and I'm you know I I'm, I'm sure there's more of a reason for like Yuriko to like you know try to like distance herself from like being like the star athlete or whatever yeah I think with Yurika it's like she was probably under just a lot of pressure because she was so naturally yeah, I was gonna say, athletic yeah. but she ultimately probably just got tired of that like you know she just felt like you know there's just nowhere for me to grow there's just all this expectation for me to be the best at everything and that's just not as fun. I just want to just do an activity I enjoy, but I don't have to worry about being competitive. And I think that's why she kind of gravitates to, again, like a non-athletic club, like the cooking club, and also being with her friend and Shoda, like just something that doesn't put so much pressure on her. Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to say, like, I guess I'm not really sure if there's if there has to be a particular reason they're trying to stray away from those parts of themselves. Yeah, there doesn't need to be a deep reason. It can just be like, you know, they just want to do something different. They were a certain way before, and they were the best at what they did before, and now they just want to try something else. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested in seeing in particular if like, because I'm sure Shishihara has made like a lot of enemies probably, and I'm I'm interested in seeing if we get to a point where like maybe that part of his past in particular comes back to haunt him. Like, I guess that's what I was trying to get at is like, I, I think you could easily kind of assume 
why they really want to like try to change themselves. But it would be interesting if like there was more to what's going on, I guess. I could certainly see old rivals of both Eureka and Shota showing up and challenging them and to be like, why have you changed your ways now? And so, yeah, I didn't think that'd be an interesting source of conflict and also help us learn more about like who they were in the past and like why they are making an effort to change who they are and how they're seen in the present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, overall, like, I don't have like a whole lot to say about this, unfortunately, because I think the premise and concept is pretty straightforward. But like, I, I just think it's really cute so far. Like, I really like the relationship between Shishihara and, um, and Yuriko. I would definitely like to keep reading more of this. Um, I don't know if it's something I would really keep up with week to week, like maybe let a few chapters build up if I feel like kind of reading a chapter or two, like as like a time waster, just to kind of catch up on what's going on a little bit. Like I, I'd, I'd like to come back to this, but for me, this would be like, a, I'll check back on this like every once in a while. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty episodic so far. And each individual chapter, it's also broken up into smaller stories that are like a couple pages. Like each chapter is like actually three, like five page stories, really. Yeah, it's a collection of vignettes, basically. Um, yeah, there, there's nothing here that, like, makes me immediately want to, like, like I don't binge a hundred chapters of it or whatever, but it, it is something I would like to check back in on every once in a while. I do, I do like it. Yeah, it's very cute and has, like, a good central premise and idea behind it of, again, two, you know, they're exceptional people. Like, they're exceptionally, like, over-skilled and good at what they used to do, but they want to do something different now. They want to present and be seen in a different way. They want to explore different things. And they're helping each other out for them, looking out for each other. I think it's a very nice central friendship. And it makes for some very funny and very charming and oftentimes very sweet and heartwarming stories. So yeah, I like this one a lot and look forward to checking in on it in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we should just move on the Ghost Story Loop. Yes, Ghost Story Loop is the last of these titles. The only title that is probably not out yet by the time you're listening to this. Maybe it is just out, but this comes to us from Jun Yagi and Tsunami Kato. This follows a high school girl, Azuza Yunami. She mainly like takes pictures of haunted places for Ghost Story Obsessed Brother, who has made or participates in the site called Yokohama Ghost Stories, where people can submit pics and stories to. And she does this for him as a favor in exchange for cake, because she's got a sweet tooth. But she doesn't really believe in the ghost stories herself. She's not that interested in them. But she's instructed one morning to go to take pictures of a well at Kuroboshi Shrine. And she goes there, and it's kind of creepy. She sees like, someone like munching on something before us that kind of creeps around but she takes the picture and then she leaves and after that like she starts kind of getting haunted because like there's kind of like this rumor this legend that if you go to this well in the shrine like a woman with no eyes makari will haunt you and steal your soul and like at the stroke of midnight your, your soul will be taken basically after encountering this person ghost woman so this ends up happening to Azusa. She like, you know, gets haunted by this Makari. And so she ends up getting like a message from like some anonymous person of like, hey, you know, I know you've gotten kind of cursed, you know, come back to the shrine. I'll help you out. And the person who sent that message to her was Rintaro, who is an exorcist. And basically he explains to her like what's causing her haunting her visions is something called a bug. Uh, basically, these are kind of like, supernatural spiritual creatures that can 
feed on people's fear, and they have created the apparition of the Makari. At least that's what they believe at first. And so they exercise this bug, which turns out to be more difficult than initially they think because it, it like has grown pretty strong. But like they work together and beat it. But afterwards, you know, she's still cursed. So it wasn't the bug. Like this Makari is still out there. She something else is cursing her. So they start working together to like figure out like what's going on, and they kind of figure out like the Makari well, is born in a mountain village with Kanagawa. So maybe if we go there, we can figure something out. But in the process of going there, and this is where the big twist comes in, uh, that kind of turns the story on its head, and you're understanding like where the story is going on its head. But like, you know, as they're driving there, the Makari shows up and like causes a bunch of pipes to fall on the car. And so Asa tries to protect Rintaro from them, uh, and she gets impaled. And she dies. And like as she's dying, she hears Rintaro like call out to her like, this happened again. I've tried to save you like four times. And so that is when like the big bombshell happens. Like, yeah, this is a reborn again story. This is a Groundhog Day story of like someone dying multiple times and getting reborn. Not really having much memory of it. Like the story opens, the first chapter opens with like Azusa having like a vision of being chased by the Makari. And we think that's just, oh, maybe a premonition, but that is reframed by this twist that, oh, that might be have been the previous time she died. And so, yeah, like the premise of the story is that like Azus has been cursed, has been dying multiple times and being brought back. And Rintaro is aware of this and he's tried to save her like four times but to no avail. And so now she's going to go back in her fifth loop. And so where is the story going there? I mean, that's where we were left off. And certainly it's a big hook for, <laughs> I think, <laughs> wanting to follow and figure out where the story is going. But yeah, I mean, I think, again, as mentioned before, the opening chapters, you know, were solid, like exorcism story fair. I think it had really good strength in the designs of the bugs, uh, the Mago form of the bug, like the the creepy Makari, like the art was very strong and giving off horror vibes. So that made it interesting enough. But, you know, it seemed like it had just like kind of the typical exorcism preface, like two people ended up ending up working together to kind of solve mysteries about like supernatural phenomena. But then this extra twist added on top of that of like Asa being caught in a Groundhog's Day loop, you know, dying multiple times from this curse and Rintaro being aware of all these different loops and been trying to help her multiple times. Like that adds a, a whole new layer of mystery, a whole new layer of intrigue on the proceedings. And yeah, it's going to be interesting to see like what the explanation for this is I like if this is like the long-term focus of the story is like Asa trying to figure out how to break Asa's loop or if there's even something even bigger under the surface so it's a very well executed combination of you know super action x and battle manga and ground to say time loop style stories Mm-hmm. I totally feel the same way. Uh, like, I, I totally thought, like, oh, this is just going to be, like, a solid exorcism series about a guy who eats the things he exercises. I thought that was already pretty good, uh, like, a good aspect of this, like, something kind of macabre to kind of, like, pull me in a little bit uh, amongst, like, all the other scary stuff that happens. But, like, yeah, no, I was not expecting the time loop stuff, but, like, you know, with the series called Ghost Story Loop... I did kind of think to myself at first, like, oh, is it going to be, like, the same ghost story over and over again? Like, I didn't really know, like, I didn't really know what the title meant, un basically, until the end of the fifth chapter, which, man, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty strong hook. I think this is the one I want to, like, keep going with the most, quite honestly, just based on that hook alone. Yeah, I mean, it's a really effective hook. Like, it did super surprise me when it happened, and so... I want to 
figure out where it's going for sure like again it's amazing how interesting you can make a series just through like really solid execution and combination of like different story elements that you don't see employed together super often like there's plenty of time loop stories there's plenty of ghost exorcism stories but combining them together in this way and creating an interesting mystery out of it and then just having again the solid execution of like the art being good the general action being good yeah i mean you can make a really effective series out of that and it worked it hooked me and i'm i'm definitely keen to follow it mm-hmm. yeah i uh man i i don't know it, it's it's really between this and um and uh robustness um i really i really like both of those a lot personally but like i said i if i had to pick one of these that like if there were more chapters of this i would like immediately read i, I think i think it would be ghost story loop Mm, I lean towards robustness because I I think ultimately robustness has the most compelling characters and also has like the the strongest art. So it's like that one was the biggest surprise to me and how much I really got into it. But I will say, yeah, Ghost Story Loop is really strong. I generally think that these series all have their levels of appeal. I think that in terms of characters, you can't go wrong with Ghost Story Loop and Ultra Femme or Robustness. And even though Dungeon Battle Royale, like, kind of is lacking in really interesting characters there is again still a lot there that is interesting that i could appreciate Mm -hmm. so overall i appreciated this round of mangamo series and i found like a lot of uh, nice stuff to enjoy out of all of them i like this round better than the last one personally there there was more here I, i think there was more here that i like really really liked personally but that's just me you know i can see i can remember it and i can see it because yeah I, I guess if i were to compare series out of all of the rounds hmm i do think that this is probably a stronger one in terms of like having some of the more most original or most interestingly executed premises for sure actually because i think that i might say that out of all eight series so far I might still like Utterworldly Country a lot because I did find the core dynamic between the core three friends in that series really good. I did like that one, yeah. And then Nazesan is just, you know, very well executed, like Yandere, like drama. But like, yeah, no, these are all really good. I mean, the robustness and Ghost Story Loop in particular are really good. And I really like Shishihara. So yeah, no, this is a, a very strong round. Mm-hmm, for sure. And uh, I think we should uh, give a big thanks to Mangamo for once again uh, sending us more series to check out before they're even on the app. And uh, I know Mangamo listened to our last podcast and they had a lot of nice things to say about that episode. And, you know, thank you to anyone at Mangamo who was listening. And uh, hey, if you're listening, we will, we will not say no to more exclusive series we could take a look at before uh, anyone else. Absolutely. They are fun to cover, and I'm just appreciative that Mangamo is adding more tiles to their service and more cool stuff to check out. That, yeah, it's, it's cool to just see more interesting tiles get localized, and I appreciate that this one in particular had some good variety to it. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think that about does it for all of our Simulpubs talk. I think we talked about a lot of really good series. And uh, like I said at the top of the show, I think we had a lot of really good variety with a lot of the stuff we talked about this episode. Um, but we are getting pretty close to the end. So I think, Lum, we should get into community shoutouts before we end the show. Yes. And I will try my best to prioritize a few that I think are relevant to this episode. So starting off, I think I'll focus on a lot of like YouTube videos that I really enjoyed recently. 
And so we mentioned that I got a lot of Patlipper vibes from Matche Lumiere. And Kyoto Video did a really good video on the Patlipper OVAs, going into their history, going to why they think this is the, that's the best introduction point to the series, and exploring like how clever it was in kind of moping a commentary on like mecha tropes and also kind of examining, deconstructing, if you will, like like the idea and appeal of the practicality of using Mecca by putting it in this kind of mundane sidelight setting in which Mecca, like in practical use, are actually very unwieldy and not very useful. And also in the employ of police and under government regulation are under further like constraints that just make the idea of piloting Mecca less an aspirational dream than, uh, you know, previous Mecha anime had portrayed it as, but just like just showing the mundanity and the absurdity in the inherent concept of using Mecca for different situations and to try and solve like just normal everyday conflicts, which I thought was a very good, very nice commentary. And that's also always something I appreciated Pat Liber for. And I think the video did it very well, did a very good examination in that. And they also did a really great video on Area 88. Speaking of like classic 80s animes that kind of deconstruct often popularized themes. But Area 88 is a great anti-war story and Creator Video did a great job of like outlining how well the adaptation prioritized the core message of that manga by, you know, reframing, condensing certain parts and creating its own ending and basically really just focusing in on like what the core message of the manga was in its story and how effectively strew like the different characters and strew like the main character arc of Shin of like how it shows kind of the damaging effect war can have on people and how it can really break a person and change their ability to like function and integrate in back into society like even when given the opportunity to return to it and I really appreciated his look at Area 88. It's been quite a long time since I revisited that series and those OVAs in particular. But like rewatching his video, like I really brought them back to mind. I was like, oh man, I, I want to revisit those. So I really appreciate his looks in general on classic like 80s media, movies, films, and TV shows and whatnot. You know, he does a good job of looking at like retro anime at this point. So yeah, like uh, these are two videos in particular are uh, ones I really enjoyed of this. Some of two videos I also really enjoy a lot recently is The Real James. I've mentioned him before. Most recently I mentioned like his like Simpsons top Christmas episodes video, which I quite enjoyed. But you know, we mentioned like a Homer Flanders a moment in this episode, <laughs> and he did a really great video uh, examining the relationship between Homer and Flanders, their love hate relationship. How oftentimes they are in conflict with each other, but a lot of times, you know, they also work together, and so they have like an interesting, nuanced relationship. And particularly from Homer's end, on the way, like he sees Flanders, and like the times where like you know he's envious of him, but sometimes he's also supportive or appreciative of him. And similarly, on Flanders' perspective, there are times where you know he's like just a good neighbor, but also what, you know, he really might think of Homer beneath the surface and how that can often manifest in certain stories. I thought it was a really great look at like one of my favorite dynamics in the show and especially a really good spotlighting of different key moments that defined the relationship in the show over the years. So I really appreciate it. Wanted to shout that out. I also think it did a really great review of Final Space recently, which I like seeing that show get spotlight and get, you know, some love and appreciation. And he did a very fair review of the show. Like, its strengths in its storytelling 
and in its drama in particular, but also kind of the weaknesses in its tonal whiplash and in its comedy, uh, particularly with Gary often being a grating character, especially in earlier in the series. But I think he did a great video, like just outlining how the series kind of grew and like the different strengths and weaknesses. So I, I appreciated that a lot. I appreciated another look at Final Space. And yeah, I thought that was a nice tribute to the series, a nice reflection on its strengths and weaknesses. And speaking of other Western cartoon review stuff, you know, Johnny Trichello's, we've mentioned his videos before, we mentioned his podcast cartoons that Chris before, but he did a really, really great thing that he mentioned he was doing for a long time that finally came out, and that is his Every Futurama Ranked video. He went through all 140 episodes of Futurama, though he consolidated the movies into just one ranking rather than separating them. So it was like more like 130, because he also included Simsorama, the Simpsons Futurama crossover, and then the compilation episode made from the video game footage. But yeah, it was a really good ranking video. I mean, he just basically went through his thoughts on every episode, just in the order of how much he likes them, roughly. And I was surprised, like... I mostly line up with uh, how I feel on a lot of his episodes, or at least where I would place a lot of them. Like, not completely. I will say, like, his bottom-ranked episode is one I actually quite enjoy, like, Yo, Lila Lila. So I was like, eh, I, I, laugh, at, like, I laugh at that ending of the episode a lot. Lila's just screaming no when everyone is, like, trying, like, actually really appreciative of her and everything's worked out and she, like, wanted to be punished because <laughs> like, she felt so guilty, but, like, everyone's actually happy. I, you know, you're thinking that that's a, honestly I think that's a funny episode so I, I don't know if that's the worst episode of Futurama or whatever and I also don't think the anthologies are like that bad so, but I would but I actually you know did agree mostly on a lot of the ones he ranked lower and especially a lot of the ones he ranked as his top tiers so you know in general I appreciate his thoughts on Futurama and his commentary on them and bringing in like kind of outside perspectives like Tariq and Kiki to comment on certain episodes too so yeah it's, it's a really great video I mean it's like you know over two hours so a lot of work went into it and I definitely recommend checking it out if you're a Futurama fan and want to like relive some of the highlights of the series and on a similar note of like reflecting on kind of Western cartoons, I really appreciated a recent video from Saber Spark where he kind of looked at, well, I guess this is like going out of Western cartoons, but like, you know, he took a look at that gumball ripoff show Miracle Star and that was just a funny video. <laughs> Where he's just like looking at this, you know, very blatant ripoff of Gumball that was made in, in China. And most especially like looking at how the Gumball team responded to that in the, in the really good episode where they like <laughs> parodied like the ripoff of them. So I like that. Uh, just look at like, what the hell? Even it was that thing. And is it really any any merit to it? And no, it's just very boring. But yeah, it's it's nice. And on the subject of like his channels, like uh, he has, a, we mentioned before that he has the Saber Spark 64 channel where him and Tom Oliver do video game reviews. And Tom Oliver did like a really good review of that NFT online play to earn game Axie Infinity and just like venting about like how this is just a really bad sign a really bad direction to take games in of like you know there's value in being escapism like I, it's, it's really a bad move a really bad sign to have like every aspect of catalyst like everything be something in which you know you are expected to like make money off of you know like it really sucks to like 
kind of make video games work to make video games like this place in which there's like this huge barrier entry to buy in this huge barrier entry to keep playing and you have this promise of reward but eventually you're but ultimately you're just like kind of beholden to these digital landlords essentially and so I think, you know, I've mentioned in previous episode, you know, a bunch of great videos outlining the crying NFTs. I think this is another good addition that kind of just gets at a very personal exasperation of like, you know, this is just not the direction I think we should take our culture. We should not take our culture in which like even our recreation is work. Everything that we do on <laughs> everything that we do in life has to be quantified and commodified in terms of like profit value. This is like an activity to make money off of. So, yeah, I think this was a great rant slash review of that. And moving beyond videos that focus on like TV animation games, like moving more to the realm of manga again. I think that there was a really great video from Erica that went through the history of the Yuri Prince trope. You know, we've talked about a lot of stories that kind of play on and examine tropes. And I think the Yuri Prince trope is like, it's such a fascinating one. And Erica did a great job, like really outlining the history of it, how it was developed, how it's been used in modern examples. So I just wanted to give that a shout out here. It's like the first new video in her, like her Yuri Studios season street. And it's a really great one. And on the subject of queer manga, I also want to recommend Anime Feminist recent recommendations guide for queer manga. They picked out about 12 titles from a diverse selection of genres of, you know, just LGBTQ focused work. And then also, of course, Yuri and BL. And so it's a really nice collection of titles, a lot of which I read and really agree with. You know, we got favorites like Kaze-san and Dreams of Dusk and Boys from the Riot. And we got a lot of really cool works that I've been meaning to check out that I, I want to check out, like number six. So I think it's a really great primer, really great selection of recommendations for, you know, some really, really, really great bet cream of the crappie, you know, uh, queer titles, queer manga to read and check out. And then the final uh, shout out I want to mention is just for the fan, the post that is set up like kind of a a new GoFundMe for their site to just help keep costs running. Something like I just encountered recently, they've set up a new GoFundMe goal for every month this year. And I just want to shout them out because I appreciate the reviews. I appreciate, you know, they've been around for so long and done a lot of great work over the years. And yeah, I think that, you know, if you can just show some support their way, I think they do great criticism. They do great stuff. So yeah, just uh, help them out. And I, that's going to be the shout outs I'll mention today. Just pulling from the list of things I got archived, but just so much, but we've already run very long. And yeah, there's just a lot, a lot I've been appreciating, a lot to like, uh, a lot to mention in the future, I'm sure. But until then, I think we'll head up into our wrap ups. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening to another Simul Pubs episode. Uh, like we mentioned uh, at some point in the show, uh, we definitely have more coming up that we will try to cover in our next news episode or probably another episode after that. Depends on what we have to cover at any one episode because uh, sometimes we have a lot to talk about and there's just too much going on in the world of manga. <laughs> Uh, but we will get to those eventually. But until then, again, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, we're going to go ahead and plug our stuff. Starting with Lum, where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lumromiyasha on Twitter. Lumromiyasha on a variety of places like Animation Relation and Amulet and Letterboxd. Where is That's where you can find me. You can also read my reviews on MangaWords.com. You get all that book coming in. A lot of reviews plan to go out. So look forward to more on there. That's where you can find the other podcast I do, Lum Squad, the Yurisigatsu Focus podcast I do with my good friend Andrew A.C. 
Yoshimura. We discuss fur and discuss the wonderful and wacky world of Mukakashi Zirasigatsura. We've been having a lot of fun going through the manga published by Wiz Media and Nice Omnibus Editions. And we are super happy to discuss the movies that are on Crunchyroll and on Blu-ray from Discotech. And we are so excited to discuss the upcoming anime that'll come out later this year. And so we have so much Jersey Outstra related stuff to talk about. We are so excited. We have so many episodes planning and coming out. So look forward to more episodes and you can find and uh, follow us on Twitter at Lum underscore squad. And of course on every podcast platform you can think of. Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it. We're probably on it. I mean, we also post episodes in the Among Arts feed as well. So a lot of opportunities to find us. And if you like the art I make, illustrations I make for our podcast as well as any illustrations animations I make in general you can find that stuff on my Instagram at Stedarkworks Alright, but as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of other podcasts uh, besides this one, which you can find links to over on my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Click on the podcast page on my personal blog. Basically, uh, get a whole list of podcasts that I do at the moment, including One Podcast Prevails, a podcast about Detective Conan, or Another Day, Another Adventure, which is a Dragon Ball Watch 3 podcast I'm doing with my good friend Sakaki. Uh, Basically, you can find all my podcasts there, including including whatever past projects I'm not involved in anymore, uh, and even a lot of my guest spots I've done for other shows. So basically, if you want to hear more of my stuff, again, go to coltoncorner.wordpress.com and click on the podcast page and check out all my stuff. Uh, as for this podcast, you could find every episode over at mangamavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash mavericks, where at the $2 tier, uh, you will have the chance to listen to select episodes of the podcast before they're available. Basically, if we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited, but it's not ready to go up on our main feed just yet, uh, we will put it on our Patreon at the $2 tier first for patrons to listen to before anyone else. Admittedly, though, that really depends on our schedules and like, you know, how much we have done at any given moment. So if you want more of a reliable content, you should sign up for our $5 tier. We're over there. You'll get to listen to one new bonus podcast at the end of every month. Our newest bonus podcast at the moment is our second installment of our regular History of Manga Magazine series, where uh, we invite our good friend Maxi Bernard of Friendship Ever Victory to basically go over a bunch of different manga magazines that they highlighted in their, uh, I'm going to say, most well-known Twitter thread. Uh, That's what we basically base all these podcasts on. And on this installment, we go over a lot of different shoujo magazines in particular. That's basically what we focus on. It was a lot of fun going over a bunch of different shoujo magazines in particular and really learning which series come from which magazine uh, and also really recognizing a lot of shoujo magazines I've uh, or uh, shoujo titles I've seen just kind of everywhere on bookshelves. Just a, lo- a lot of stuff I knew of but have never checked out. So, you know, I learned a lot from doing that discussion. And uh, if you want to listen to that, again, that's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, Again, it's really the best way for you guys to support us uh, if you so wish to. We really appreciate any support you give us on there. Again, patreon.com slash manga mavericks. But as for everything else, you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at manga mavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks where we post different excerpts of the podcast and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Uh, email us anything at mavericks at gmail.com. Do you have any thoughts on any of the Savile pubs that we talked about on this episode? 
Uh, do you have any thoughts on uh, whatever you're reading right now? Or are you reading anything that you want us to talk about on the show? You know, email us anything about manga or the podcast, and we'll read it on the show. We love getting emails from you guys, so please send us your thoughts over at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on a lot of different platforms at this point, but especially on Apple Podcasts or even on Spotify, you know, uh, if you leave us a rating and review, it really helps the visibility of our show. And we just really love getting feedback from you guys, positive or negative. Uh, We use whatever feedback you guys give us to basically make the show that much better. But uh, yeah, that's going to be about it for this episode of the podcast. This has been episode 189 of the Manga Marks podcast. And we'll see you guys next time for episode 190. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.